Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, I, I saw a great movie last night I'm anxious to talk about. Have you seen The Stars Born yet? I have not, but uh, someone very close to me said that it was awesome, and when the movie was over, uh, it was complete silence, which I guess the last time they compared it to the way the crowd responded to um, American Sniper, where when the movie's over, everybody's just sort of looking around. So that that has my my interest peaked. It was really cool, I have to say it. And it's not you know generally the kind of movie that I that I check out, but I saw the original Stars Born with uh, Chris Christopherson and, and Barbara Streisand, you know, decades ago. So I thought I you know I'd check it out. And I'm a big fan of Bradley Cooper, and the director Todd Phillips is someone that I'm familiar with friends with i guess so i was anxious to see how they treated that older you know movie and it was really cool but it got me thinking and this is just this is a little you know bit of a sidetrack from what we normally do here but you know in wrestling you've been around it enough to know that generally there's there's kind of this unwritten kind of code of respect where you call wrestlers by their gimmick names right right Right. You don't usually call wrestlers by their given names. And I think that's just something that's been around for decades and it's just, it, it happens very naturally. So I, I get to, we were watching a movie last night. We got down and Laura and I were driving home. And I, I, I said to Laura, I said, I wonder, you know, when they were on the set, you know, working on a movie, because it takes, you know, for a two hour movie, you're probably in production for 45 days uh, on location. And then the rest of it is all post production. But for 45 days, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga are working together very, very closely because the movie was really about those two. A little bit of Sam Elliott, a little bit of a couple other people, but it was really Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. So I'm wondering out loud as we're driving home, did Bradley Cooper or Bradley, if you will, or my buddy Brad, did does he refer to Lady Gaga as Lady Gaga mm. or, or Gaga? Hmm. Which sounds really funny. Hey, Gaga. You know, it's like Holster. You know, it's, 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 you know, Razor. You know, you, you, you know, it, you shorten it up a little bit, make a nickname out of it. And I'm just wondering if he referred to her as Lady or Gaga or her full name, Lady Gaga, which would be awkward. You know, once you get to be friends with somebody, you should say, hey, Conrad Thompson, or hey, Eric Bischoff, it would be Conrad or Eric. But in this case, I wonder if he called her Gaga. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because here on the show, you sometimes alternate. Sometimes he's Hulk, other times he's Terry. How do you decide how you're going to address him? You know, that's really, that's interesting. And up until really about two years ago or three years ago, it was almost always Hulkster. Right. Or Hulk, because most of the time we were in public and and again i think that's kind of the code of conduct if you will mm -hmm. the unwritten code of conduct is when there are other people around particularly people that aren't in the industry you stick with the gimmick name and you know since neither he or i have really been around the business uh directly in such a long time i've kind of slipped away from that every once in a while and i try to catch myself Especially when I'm alternating between the two, because I, I can imagine for some people that may get a little confusing. He's talking about Hulk, and then he mentions Terry. Which is it? You know right. what I mean? Right. Some people don't know Hulk Hogan is Terry. So I try to catch myself, even to this day. Um, but for the most part, I try to um, stick with 
the the wrestler character names just out of respect did he ever have a um a conversation with you like brother you're in the circle now it's terry no 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 and like i said this is something i learned early on and you learn by how other people treat you know when, when i first started working for Vern back in 87 you know and i didn't you know i never i was never exp- i was never around the wrestlers i was never around production I was never backstage, you know, when I first started working for the AWA. It wasn't until 88 or 89 that I was kind of allowed to be, you know, in the inner circle, so to speak. Um, and I noticed that, you know, like Vern and Greg and people of stature and authority would always refer to wrestlers by their character names. You know, Wahoo. You know, Greg always called Wahoo McDaniels Wahoo. He never called him Ed. You know, Ray Stevens was Ray Stevens, so that was a little bit different. but. And Nick Bachwinkle, but if a wrestler had a character name, you know, I learned from Vernon Gregg that you refer to them by their character names. And then, you know, when I got to WCW, I saw the same thing. I was exposed to the same kind of code of conduct, and I just carried it forward. And now I do it out just—it's it's out of respect. Now, I, I, when I see somebody I haven't seen in a long time, um, even if there's nobody else around, I refer to them by their character names. Again, just a sign of respect. It is a weird subculture. It's one of the things that makes wrestling so fascinating because there's so many little unwritten rules and behind the scenes, things like that, that we fans just can't get enough of. And one of the things that's always stuck out to me as the the sort of barometer of how you handle this is the undertaker. I've talked about this with Bruce in the last few months. Uh, how did you refer to the undertaker when you were in the WWE? Taker. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you work there, then you call him Taker. But I feel like if you're a fan like me, he's Mr. Undertaker. Sort of like when <laughs> you were a kid and you're at your friend's house and you refer to his mom as Mrs. Whatever, you know. You know, and, and that's funny. And I guess it's just the way one is brought up, you know. And I'm, I was brought up to always respect, and I don't want to say just your elders, you know. I'm 63 years old now, so I don't run into too many elders <laughs> you know, at this stage of my life we're all kind of peers you know um but there are still people that i need who i have respect for you know if i don't know them really well if i haven't communicated with them prior or we're not on a, a first name basis i always call them mr or sure. Ms. sure i it's just until i get to know somebody i i feel awkward calling them by their first name no, because, I, again, it's just how you're brought up. I agree. That's a Southern thing. And uh, we're going to talk about some good old-fashioned Southern-style wrestling today when we talk about World Championship Wrestling. And one of my favorite characters as a kid, the man they call Vader. But first, let's circle back to last week. What did you think about our giant episode? I know that uh, there were some hot takes in there. Curious now that you've had a minute to sort of marinate on it. What you thought of that show? You know, I... Every time we do a show like that and, you know, you're really good at, you're good at asking questions that kind of force me to open up a little bit. And, and I, I try to, to satisfy our audience because I know I, you know, I, I can't tell jokes like Bruce. I don't have great stories. You know, I don't have the recall. And quite frankly, Bruce has been in the industry, you know, longer than I have. And, and he, you know, I was more on the business side of the wrestling business. Bruce was really for the most part, more on the talent side and creative side. So he, he just naturally has, you know, more stories than I do. Um, but when I do talk about 
wrestlers, even those that I have a tremendous amount of respect for or affection for. You know, and Paul, I won't say he's one of my close friends. He's not. You know, we we when we see each other, we're friendly, but that's it. You know, we don't stay in touch. But I like Paul and I respect Paul. But at the same time, I feel obligated to not sugarcoat things and to be honest and respectful. And that's a hard line. It's a hard balance sometimes. Right. Because if you're really honest and, you know, if I, you know, if I'm honest about myself, I'm, you know, I, I have plenty of flaws that I'm, you know, able to identify, um, or anybody else. But, you know, I, sometimes when we're done doing shows like that, I, I, we get done and I think about it for an hour or two and I think, God damn, did I have to say that? <laughs> couldn't, couldn't I have said that a little bit better? And my only hope is that, you know, when Paul hears about it, I'm not sure if he listens to our podcast. I kind of doubt it. But if he does or if he hears about it, I just hope that, you know, it's it's communicated to him in context. You know, it's it's not meant to be negative or to tear anybody down, especially somebody like Paul. Like I said, he's, you know, he's been in the business out for how many years? 20 some odd years. Yep. You know, he's made tens of millions of dollars. In the process, um, how do you criticize anybody like that with that much success? But at the same time, you know, we've all started out in the businesses that we're in and we've all made mistakes and that's what we're here to talk about. So I have mixed emotions. I enjoy talking about it. I love talking about, you know, the evolution of people and the business and what they were like when they first started and and all of that. But at the same time, I often wonder what these people are going to think about when they hear back. Did you hear what Bischoff said about you? Because they always, you know, they, they never give you, give anybody the full context of what we say. It's always the headline. And sometimes the headline doesn't read too well, but such is life. I'm, I'm really intrigued that you brought this up today because I have Google alerts set up for our show and your name. So whenever something pops off online, I can take a look at it, retweet it, talk about it for the show, whatever. And someone went back and I believe it was Lords of pain a couple of weeks ago and recapped an episode that we had done weeks or maybe even months ago. It wasn't like something we had just done. So it wasn't at the top of my mind and they really transcribed an entire passage of the show where you were explaining the way the writing was done now and the way it was done back then for presenting wrestling on television. And when I read it, I thought, man, Eric is just really giving this guy the business. I can't believe he's just shitting on him like this. And then I realized when I got to the bottom, wait a minute, that was from our show. So I was literally doing it with you. But when you explained it on the show, it didn't sound nearly as bad as it read. And I felt like you really took a dump on the guy when I read it. But when I listened to it, I didn't think so. So it's fascinating how things out of context, I mean, and that's sort of one of the Bischoff sayings that we've really stressed from day one here, context is king. But the, that email or that yeah, calendar alert, what Google alert really was a perfect example of that. Because when you said it on the show, I didn't think anything of it, but actually reading it in print, totally different reaction from me. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, when we're doing the show and I've caught myself more and more lately, you know, you ask me a question and I'll start getting into something and then I'll stop. And I know dead air is never a a good thing, you know, in in radio or in broadcasting, but I'm really careful now, or I try to be most of the time and think through what I'm about to say for that reason only. I mean, I know how I feel and I know what I mean to say, but sometimes the way 
you feel and what you intend to say doesn't necessarily come off to, to the listener, or in this case, as you're referring to the reader, the same way. And, you know, I, 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 I hate being misunderstood, I guess. I mean, sure. there are times when I, I know I say shit and I intentionally, you know, sharpen the edges of it of for whatever reason. And there are times I want to be brutally honest and direct. And if it draws blood, it draws blood. And I don't really care. But there are other times when, especially when we're talking about something complicated, um, you know, you've got to be really careful what you say, because I know it's going to get repeated. And oftentimes it's going to get repeated a little differently than we at least intended. And certainly when it's transcribed, it, like you said, it, sometimes it just reads cold. Yeah. I think one of those instances where you really want to sharpen the edges, the one that comes to mind is the, the honky talk man. Uh, but fuck my- him. Why <laughs> even bring that fat fuck up? <laughs> Greasy son of a bitch. You know, my life would be better if there was a way possible. And maybe, you know, I should reach out to him someday and say, look, I'll give you $200 a month. If you let me get on Skype every single morning and fire you. Because if I could fire Honky Tonk Man at the beginning of every day, that would probably make my day even that much better than it would otherwise be. Can I just tell you that he is like a dream guest for me in a live podcast? I bet he is. I think it would be phenomenal if you and I were on tour. Let's say we're in Rochester on December 15th and Honky Tonk Man does a run in and we have a Bischoff. You mean you, really a run in? Okay. You mean, you mean a roll in? Well, just hypothetically, he ain't ain't running anywhere. If honky tonk man were to just show up in Baltimore on November 3rd on Nashville on November 4th, that would be some shit, man. Oh, we'd stir it up. We'd stir it up. You know what? There was about, what was it now? About four years ago. I think it was four or five years ago. Cause he lived in Phoenix when I, I think he still does. He lives in Arizona and I was living in Arizona at the time at a little town called Cave Creek, Arizona. And he, he got online, he was doing an interview, and he was just ripping me down one side and, and the other. And, and, and actually, he was doing it to a promoter that was promoting a show that I was going to be on the following month. So I called the promoter. I said, look, I know you're tight with Honky. Just tell him to show up. I've got a friend that owns a bar right down the road. I'm sure he'll put up a boxing ring. And we'll, we'll, you know, we'll two old fat guys will go in that ring and we'll just pound the piss out of each other for charity. How's that? And of course he, he, he declined that offer. Um, probably a good thing for both of us, actually, now that I think about it, (laughs) (laughs) nobody wants to see my fat ass flailing away in the ring either. But, you know, I was pretty motivated to do it. I, you know, I thought, you know, I know I've got. What's that song? I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm good once as I've ever been or some shit like that. Yeah. I'm I'm sure I've got at least one or two good, you know, right-left combinations left in me, if need be. And I was motivated, but he, he wouldn't take the bait. Well, you know, it's funny that we're talking about wrestlers fighting for real, because I feel like that's going to come up in our Vader episode. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, I think Vader is already in the company by the time you take over WCW, but... You both had a run through AWA. Did you ever run into Vader in AWA or was your first time meeting him in world championship wrestling? No, the first time meeting him was, was in WCW. I'd heard a lot about him. He was either gone or on his way out the door about the time that I started in AWA, but I had certainly heard a lot about him. Uh, Brad Ringens, who was a good friend of mine. Uh, I'd known Brad since high school, actually. 
who ended up being one of the trainers uh, for Vern Gagne. And Brad worked. You know, he he he, he was a wrestler. Um, he made the U.S. Olympic Greco-Roman team, uh, I think, in 1980, the year it was boycotted by Jimmy Carter. Carter. But he nevertheless, he made the U.S. team before the boycott. He was a very, very good wrestler, and that's how I knew of him in high school. He wrestled for a school in Appleton, Minnesota, and I wrestled in Minnetonka, and we'd always meet in the regionals. And Brad was one year older and about two weight classes heavier than me, but Brad would just destroy our team captain. We had a team captain we thought was like the best high school wrestler you know, in the country, Gary Christensen. And he was just amazing to us, but Brad just destroyed him. So um, we, uh, Brad and I ended up becoming friends just through high school wrestling, and we stayed friends later on. And then Brad went to work for Vern Gagne uh, as a trainer, and he worked in the ring a little bit. And Brad actually spent some time in WWE uh, for a couple of years and then just went back to training full time and eventually became kind of the key liaison between New Japan Pro Wrestling and not just WCW, but all of the American wrestlers that would come over and work for New Japan would kind of go through Brad. He was more or less an agent, if you will, and, and handled all that. So uh, through Brad and through you know being in AWA, I certainly knew a lot about Vader and heard many things about him, but I had never worked with him or met him until I got to WCW. What was the rap you were hearing from these guys? He certainly had a reputation as being, you know, I think these days they would call it strong style, but back then that phrase may not have existed. Maybe it was stiff or snug. What was, uh, the rap you heard about Leon white when you first heard about him in Minnesota? You know, not too much about his style in the ring or whether he was stiff or not. Um, more about his personality and, and, and what a great athlete he was. You know, I didn't hear anything negative about him. You know, I want to make that really clear. Um, there was no bad rap on, on Vader. It was more about, you know, Vern was a big fan of using, you know, athletes, whether you're a, an amateur wrestler or you, know, you play college football or pro football. You know, if you had a legitimate, you know, athletic background, um, you were, you know, you went right to the top of the list in Vern's mind and, you know, Leon, you know, played football, was a good football player. And because of that, I think both Vern and Greg generally spoke fairly highly of him. I didn't, I don't recall hearing too many negative things about, about Vader. Well, let's talk about the first time you actually work with him in WCW. I assume when you come into the company, uh, he was either not there yet, or he was almost there. Well, tell me about the first time you met him. Uh, professionally in world championship wrestling. I, you know, I, I tend to think that he was already there and, and if he wasn't, he, he must've come in, in short, must've come in shortly thereafter because I remember, you know, specifically working with him early on when I was a backup announcer at WCW. Um, and that, you know, that's one of the interesting things I, you know, knowing that we were going to do this show today and talking about Vader, um, you know, my, my career as, as, in terms of running WCW, Vader was not there for most of that that period. He 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 left really about the time that we really started getting going. Um, but I worked with Leon a lot, and it's one of the unique advantages I think I had in some respects because when I, you know, when I first got to WCW, I you know I wasn't a threat to anybody. You know, m- maybe. Jim Ross to a certain degree, and I was more probably more of a pain in his ass than a threat. I don't think Jim saw me as a threat of any kind, even though Jim heard 
literally looked me in the eye the day he hired me and said, okay, kid, you got a good look. You're pretty good, on, pretty good on camera and on the mic. You know, I'm hiring you for one reason and one reason only, and that's to make Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone miserable. Those were his exact words. I'm not even paraphrasing. I mean, those were his exact words. And I was so, you know, broke and desperate. I thought, well, I, I don't have anything against Jim or Tony, but if that's what I got to do, I'm your man. You know, nobody can make somebody as miserable as I can. I'm the guy. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, once I got there, you know, I, I was, I just, I was so grateful for the job. I was kind of like a potted plant. You know, I just wanted to keep my head down, do my work, stay out of everybody's way, don't get involved in the politics and just do the best job I could do. And because of my stature, which I didn't have any, um, it made it easy for me to move maneuver around the locker room. Like I said, I wasn't a threat to anybody, really. <clears throat> I was the new kid on the block. A lot of the guys knew who I was because of my exposure on ESPN and, you know, in, in AWA and all that kind of stuff. But none of them really, you know, Larry Zabisco knew me, um, you know, a handful of other guys, you know, actually knew me. But for the most part, you know, everybody that I worked with in WCW were people that I had never really met before. So it was easy for me and it gave me an opportunity to see people and, and, and how they treated each other in a way that if I would have come into WCW as the boss, so to speak, you know, people are going to, they're going to act differently around you, right? You're not going to see the real person when you walk through the locker room and you're the boss, they, you know, they're going to, they're going to act one way or the other because they know you're the boss. Um, but when you're a potted plant, like I was, uh, and you didn't really threaten anybody and they didn't have anything they could possibly get out of you or try to impress you. There's no reason to try to impress you. You get to see how they really behaved in, in their own, you know, closed environments. And, you know, Leon was one of those guys that I know, obviously you noticed him right away cause he was so big. Um, but Leon was a, he was a little bit of a complicated character. You know, I noticed it right away. And again, because I knew of him. I didn't know him, but I knew of him when I got there. He was one of the guys that I started paying you know, particularly close attention to because of the things that I had heard about Vern and because he was so big and athletic. I mean, he could do amazing things in the ring. And Leon was – he's just uh, – he was complicated. I'm sure we'll talk about that as we go. I don't want to drag you through the whole show in one question. So you first have an opportunity to meet him, but you're an announcer. Um do you have any sort of, cause we've heard that at times he could be difficult to deal with, you know, that he would be asked to show up for a pre-tape or cut a promo here or there. And then for whatever reason, uh, he was not always in the best mood. Was that your experience or was it easy the entire time you were an announcer from that perspective? You know, he always, and this is where, you know, this is where it gets complicated. When I think of Vader, I think of two people because he really was two distinct personalities for the most part. He was soft-spoken. He was, he was a big teddy bear. He smiled a lot. He joked around a lot. Um, he, he wanted to be liked. He wanted to be accepted. Um, he didn't have an arrogance or, uh, he wasn't trying to intimidate anybody for the most part, but then there were times when 
properly motivated or unmotivated, he, he could be a real pain in the ass to be around. And I, it never happened to me. I saw it. I saw him react to other people in the way that I just described a moment ago, but not to me. For me, he was always pretty, and there was no reason for it. Like I said, he didn't like me. He didn't dislike me. I, I, I literally was, you know, nondescript when I first started working there. But when it came time for me to work with him, whether it was an interview or whatever, and we'd go through it and, you know, we may rehearse it once or twice or just walk through the bullet points together. He was always, he was on time. He was where he was supposed to be. And, you know, he treated me with, you know, whatever level of respect I needed in that particular scene you know, to do an interview with, um, you know, he, he was always very professional with me when I first started, you know, it wasn't until later that, you know, things changed a little bit, but. Uh, when I first started, he was pretty easy for me to work with. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium, you can even customize the frame, and you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. He comes in with, um, quite a big push. I guess we should remind everybody as we start in 1993, Vader had just gained the world title from Ron Simmons, just a couple of days after Starcade. When you first took over, just as a frame of reference, who was the champion sort of carry us through what WCW looked like when you first come to power and where Vader is on the card. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to do because you know, you, 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 the context you just put that in is, you know, when you first took over, well, I didn't really take over until about 1996 or 1997. You know, when I first became the executive producer, I had very little authority over anything other than television and television production. I had no control over booking. I, and I didn't want any, by the way. I've talked about that many times. I had no control over storylines. I had no control over hiring and firing of talent. And it was that way until probably 94 or 95 before I started really, you know, I think it was 94, late 94, uh, before I had um, operational control over what they referred to as wrestling operations, which would have been hiring and firing and management of talent. 
but when I first started in 93 as executive producer, I didn't have any of those controls. You know, as far as who was the champion, fuck, I don't know. I have to go back. I have to Google that shit. So let's talk about, you know, from a creative standpoint, you know, I know you're going to say that you weren't really in control of that, but I do want to talk about 1993 because I think so many people remember that year for his feud with sting and you guys are getting even some mainstream publicity for this. Uh, believe it or not, you guys had a spot on entertainment tonight, but as we set up super brawl three in Asheville, North Carolina, this is when we saw the white castle of fear match that people are still talking about these silly vignettes. And I think most people sort of point the finger to Sharon Sadello for those. What was your involvement with the white castle of fear and the nonsense that that match produced from a vignette standpoint? I didn't have any, and that was Sharon Sadello. And that was one of the, you know, Sharon and I never got along. Um, and, and I'm not sure why it could have been just chemistry to start off with because Sharon was a, it was, she's a very intelligent, um, very aggressive in her own way. Um, and, and successful to, to, to some degree in WCW, but she had a very strong opinion about what she wanted to do and didn't want to do more importantly. She was a very political animal. I mean, she really saw herself as, somebody who would be either running the company or very close to the top of running the company. And she didn't really have a lot of room or time or interest in anything that I had to say. Now, what was interesting, and this is just goes to the kind of the dysfunctional way that WCW was originally set up, you know, even before I got there, Sharon had complete control over pay-per-view and pay-per-view marketing. Even though that pay-per-view marketing would show up on television, um, she had autonomy and complete control over the vignettes and the promotions that were being done for pay-per-view. So right off the bat, that's kind of fucked up. You know, in my opinion, if it shows up on television, it affects the wrestling product. Who's ever running the wrestling show, who's ever the showrunner, you know, in, in traditional television parlance should have complete control over everything that the viewer sees, because it has to be, has to be consistent and cohesive. You can't have, you know, one style or or one kind of storyline going on in your pay-per-view marketing and something different going on or disconnected going on on television. But that's, that's the way WCW was set up. So Sharon having, having the, you know, complete autonomy over, you know, pay-per-view and pay-per-view marketing, she had a pretty significant budget to market those pay-per-views with. And I think she fancied herself as a, as a producer. Um, she wanted to really, produce high end, really dramatic, uh, impactful spots in the white castle of fear was all her. Um, I had no input into that. I didn't ask for any, I didn't want any. And had I asked for some input, I wouldn't have been able to have it. Um, but that was all Sharon Sadello. So as silly as the vignettes were, the match is outstanding. Meltzer would even say it's one of the best match or the best strap match he'd ever seen. Uh, sting is going to get color. Uh, Vader is uh, also going to blade his ear and apparently uh, do some damage there that requires uh, a trip to the hospital. Phenomenal match. I know you're not necessarily, um, you know, one to get on here and say it was a four star or a five star or something like that, 
but Vader and Sting, man, they were tearing it up here in 93, were they not? No, they were really were. And, and I think that says a lot about the chemistry between, I mean, first of all, they were both great athletes. Sting in the right circumstance, properly motivated. It's not that he wasn't motivated, but it's no different than, you know, musicians or actors and actresses. It all depends on who you're working with. Sometimes you can, you go out and have a match um, and it'll be, you know, on a scale of one to 10, it'll be a five or six or maybe a seven, you know, because you, you work your ass off, you do everything you can do. But if the chemistry's not quite right, you never get to that eight or nine or 10 level. Right. And I think the chemistry between Leon or Vader and Sting was so good. Um, that was the magic and add to that, that, you know, Vader was at the top of his game, I think around that time, physically as an athlete, um, felt really comfortable. He knew his character. He understood what he needed to do as, as a big man. And I think Sting loved working with him. You know, I, I remember years ago, I haven't talked to Sting about this in a long time, but we have talked in recent years about the, those matches that he had with Vader, and he really thinks highly of them. He, I think they're some of the highlights of his career, to be honest. And if you haven't already, you should go out of your way to watch that Super Brawl 3 match. Uh, right after that, he starts working with Cactus Jack on a lot of the house shows. And, and we're going to talk about the feud with Cactus Jack. But one of the things I wanted to touch on is a report from The Observer here from March 15th. WCW champion Big Van Vader reportedly signed an unprecedented four-year contract this past week, which would time up through the first week of March 1997. This, if the story is accurate, would be the longest term deal in WCW history. While no figures are official and these numbers are prone to the normal exaggeration you can get from unverified figures in wrestling, the figures I was given are that Vader's deal are for 2.5 million over four years, which would be 625 grand per year. Vader 36 had just a few weeks earlier signed a $200,000 deal for eight dates with the UWFI over the next year plus received a substantial signing bonus with each deal that would make his March 93 to March 94 annual earnings at based on our reports, $975,000. Keep in mind, those figures may or may not be somewhat exaggerated. As far as guaranteed money in writing, Vader would be, if these numbers are even close to accurate, the highest paid wrestler in the business. So much for WCW whittling away at the pay scale. Chat me up here. Do you know any of the details about what Vader's contract may have looked like in March of 1993? Yeah, I do. And I don't think those numbers have ever been published. So out of respect, I'm not going to give out the number, but I can tell you it's substantially less than what Dave reported. Well, there's a, a phrase in the business, um, sting money. Was he making sting money? No. Okay. When you hear a number like that, which Dave is, is pretty forthcoming and saying, Hey guys, these may or may not be exaggerated. Do you sort of hang your hat on that being another one of the guys trying to push up other contract values or how would a number that's inflated like that be pushed out there? I have no idea. I mean, really chasing rumors like that and, and misinformation, it, it, who knows how it, how it started or what the intent uh, was when whoever started it started it. You know, nobody was, you know, nobody was making, what Sting was, um, we all know the kind of money he was making, and, and Luger was. Um, 
But I can tell you that Vader was not making more than Flair. So if you want to use that as a reference, but in terms of why people overinflate those numbers, I don't know. Maybe they just like to, you know, maybe it's the same reason that, you know, in the NFL, everybody's talking about 10 million and 20 and $40 million contracts until you read the fine print. Yeah. And they're 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 million million dollar year contracts. If you hit all your bonuses and all your thresholds and you don't get hurt and you make the playoffs and you make the pro bowl team and if, and if, and if, and if then feasibly it could possibly be that much, but it never is. Um, there were no incentives tied to Vader's contracts that I can recall. Now Vader did, you know, I have no idea what his UF, WI money was and what he was making in Japan, there may have been some incentives in his contract uh, related to New Japan because he had an existing relationship with New Japan. That may have been something that would have notched him up a little bit, but that money would have come out of New Japan. It would not have come out of WCW. WCW would have facilitated it. They would have allowed him to work in New Japan, and he may, be a, may have been able to keep you know all or most of that money. Um, but it would not have come out of WCW's payroll. Let's talk about March 11th. Sting would become the WCW champion for the third time in a match in London, England at the Wembley arena where he pinned big van Vader, catching him with a power slam as Vader came off the ropes in 16 minutes. And it's the first title change for WCW outside of the United States. And it's the largest crowd to see a WCW event since 1989 and by far the largest gate in company history. Vader wins the title back though, just six days later in Dublin, Ireland with a power bomb. Why the double switch here? This feels a little old school. Well, it was old school, but I believe it was Ole Anderson that was running things at that time. Um, May need a correction on that, but I'm pretty certain I'm right about that. Yeah. And Ole, Ole was as old school as it gets. You couldn't get any, I mean, other than Bill Watts, and um, I don't think you could get more old school than Ole Anderson. And I certainly can't, you know, explain why they did it other than, you know, the, the thinking wasn't it, you know, it was something that I heard a lot, especially in 93 and, and 92, 93 and into 94, you know, Watts was the same way. He had the same, you know, philosophy is in order to build the house show business, you had to do big, unexpected things at house shows. And I, I don't disagree with it, by the way, I understand the philosophy, um, but I think that was probably it. I'd have to guess because I wasn't a part of the conversation. But I'm guessing they thought, okay, this is an opportunity. We need to, we need to establish ourselves in Europe. They saw Europe as a big market. Everybody knew that WWF was going over there and making big money. The feeling was that the domestic audience, especially for WCW, was dead, almost non-existent. Whereas over in Europe, they could go over there two years, two times a year, maybe even three, and draw some really big houses. So I'm sure the logic was let's give them something special. Let's make sure they know that when they come to a house show, something big, something unexpected is going to happen. It's not always saved for television. Well, something you guys were saving for television goes down. That's going to have everybody talking about it. Uh, this is something that you and I've never touched on here on the show. WCW Saturday night on April 17th, Cactus Jack would beat Vader by count out super brutal match. 
As a result of the match, Cactus would get 24 stitches, including 17 above the eye, seven below. He would suffer a broken nose, a dislocated jaw, and a concussion. And Vader cut a hell of a promo after. Just a brutal match that most people remember for Harley Race removing the protective mask from around the side of the ring. And Vader powerbombing Cactus Jack on the floor very hard. He's knocked out, loses feeling in, in various extremities. Uh, he, he leaves, goes to an ambulance. A lot of this is taped. And on TV, it's presented as a legitimate career ending or perhaps even life-threatening situation. And Meltzer would write in the building, there was a legitimate fear that he had broken his neck. Talk to me about this angle. And as an old timer might say, this piece of business, because this is supposed to be a business where it looks like it hurts, but, and this is anything but that. Yeah. I mean, obviously I remember it because of its intensity and you're right. I mean, there were a lot of people that were justifiably concerned that cactus was really hurt badly. We knew he was hurt, but there's a difference between being hurt and being hurt badly or permanently or worse. And there was a few moments of, of concern about that. And it's what, look, I know again, I, I get into what I like and what I don't like. It wasn't my kind of match. I, I recognize it for its brutality. And I even back then, you know, this was long before I ever really thought about creative. I mean, I really didn't think about creative. I, I was focused on what I was hired to be focused on. Um, and I didn't, because I didn't know anything about laying out matches. I didn't really think about storylines. It was just never in my wheelhouse. So I didn't give a lot of thought to it, but I, but I knew what I liked and what I didn't like. And to me that went too far. And part of that was, you know, Mick cactus at that time, you know, he loved that type of action. So one of the reasons he ended up leaving WCW and someday we'll do a cactus Jack show or a Mick Foley show or a mankind show or whatever we want to call him on that particular day. But it's one of the, you know, the, the areas that, that Mick and I disagreed on, to the point where Mick ended up leaving uh, because of it. Mick liked those kinds of matches. He loved the brutal, dangerous, almost death-defying type of matches. And he hurt himself regularly. He got to the point, you know, where, you know, he would put himself into situations where he was putting himself at great risk and, and putting the company at risk in the process in the long run in this, this match that you're describing was kind of the, the beginning of that evolution in McFoley. Um, he loved those kinds of matches and certainly, you know, Vader was, you know, an opponent that could certainly facilitate it. Is anybody, do you remember anybody within the company one way or another, um, being upset with Vader? I mean, obviously this is, this is the plan. I mean, he's not, as they say, going into business for himself, but still, it does feel like something that there's conversation about. Do you recall any of that? I wasn't a part of it. You know, I was isolated from that. Now, not to the degree that I was isolated from creative in, in so forth in AWA, because I was really isolated from it there, but it just wasn't my, 
you know, it was like the, the legal department doesn't talk to the finance department unless they absolutely have to. And this is one of those situations where it was really a wrestling operations issue and a creative issue and a talent management issue. And it had nothing to do with television production. So it just I wasn't a part of it, really. I mean, I had heard, you know, a lot of people didn't like it. A lot of people thought it was great. You know, wrestlers love that kind of intensity. Some of them, um, you know, we got a great reaction from some fans. But it to me, it went too far. You know, it get, when it gets to the point where somebody may really get hurt permanently, it's no longer entertainment right. to me. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Let's talk about something that was entertaining. And that is the match he had with Davy boy Smith, uh, Davy boy Smith here in 1993 is a different Davy boy than the one we've talked about from 1998 Meltzer gave their match at Slamboree three and three quarter stars. Davy boy gets the win by DQ. So the title doesn't change hands. Uh, when you're there in 93, was there ever any serious consideration to putting the world title on Davy boy to the best of your knowledge? Yeah, I remember a conversation about it only as it relates to Europe. In 1993, there was a lot of focus on Europe, especially the UK. Um, there were a lot of things being done to try to lay the groundwork to help make WCW a much more established brand in in the UK in particular. Germany Germany as well, but Germany was almost secondary to, to the UK. And there was a lot of conversation about it. Yeah, people were high on Davey. Let's keep it going here and remind you that he's working house shows at the time against a variety of opponents, but Foley is still out. He's going to be out for a little bit. Uh, and one of the things they're, they're angling for is a big tag team match over the summer. So Meltzer would report that sting Davy boy, Sid vicious and big van Vader were all in Tampa on the beach a few weeks back, putting together an $80,000 mini movie for the July pay-per-view. And we remember this is where they have a little person and boats are blown up. What the fuck? This is some of the worst shit ever. What do you remember? How in the hell does this get greenlit? Yeah, and that was Sharon Sadello and Bob Dew. Uh, Bob Bob Dew was the, the executive vice president of WCW at that time. He was my boss. He was so I reported to to Bob. Uh, I oversaw all of television television production and the budgets associated with it. Um, Wrestling operations, that being, you know, Oli, I believe at that time, um, reported to Bob Dew, as did Sharon Sadello and, and all of the other operating units within WCW, financing and accounting and marketing and PR and all those people reported up to Bob Dew. Um, Bob, you know, Bob signed off on that. He, he thought it was great. Sharon did a good job selling it. And, you know, like I said, I think, you know, with the White House of, of Fear, I really believe to this day Sharon Sadello saw herself because I worked with her as a talent early on. You know, when, when I before I even became executive producer, when I was just a talent, I would go to some of the shoots that she would produce and she was directing them. It wasn't like she just hired a bunch of people and said, OK, this is what I want 
you know, you guys go to figure out how to do it. She was hands-on in, in directing it and producing them. And I think she really fancied herself to be either, you know, a, a movie producer or commercial director or something of that nature because her stuff was way the fuck over the top. It was way over the top. It was way over the top. And the rumor in innuendo is that somebody else fancied Sharon. We've talked about this briefly in the past, but true or false, Sharon Sedillo and uh, Ole Anderson, uh, it was Roll Tide. He rolled a lot of tide, um, but her and Holly, which by the way, you know, and Sharon was an attractive woman. Don't get me wrong. Um, she was, you know, she was an attractive woman. And like I said, she was intelligent. She was articulate. There was just, I don't know, something about her and I that just didn't mix chemistry wise. And, and I was shocked, you know, when I first started hearing the rumors about, you know, Oli and Sharon, because they, you know, they tried to kayfabe the hell out of it. They didn't want anybody to know, right? But everybody knew. It was like the worst kept secret in WCW. Um, and, you know, you look at those two together and it's just, you know, it was mind boggling how, how that worked out, you know, and for no other reason than they were such entirely different people. I mean, Oli was crude and rough around the edges and stubborn. And I mean, Oli was Oli. You know, and, and Sharon, you know, even though I didn't really get along with her, um, she was a sophisticated, educated, quiet, you know, she wasn't a loud, you know, aggressive person. She was very, very quiet, um, almost, uh, an introvert to a degree. Uh, and Oli was exactly the opposite. So it was, it was a bar bizarre pairing to be sure. Uh, you guys did a clash of the champions, uh, a six man here, Vader rude and Sid on one side, sting Davy boy and Dustin on the other side, but it was at risk because all of a sudden Vader found himself hospitalized. He was immobilized for a couple of days and swelling heavily. And he temporarily lost feeling, uh, during a match with Davy boy. And it turns out it's a pinched nerve in his back. And it feels like the clash may be in jeopardy, but he manages to power through the match. Do you remember this? I do. I mean, vaguely, I wasn't involved in it, obviously laying it out or anything like that, but I, but I do remember it because of the fact that it was at risk. We also got the, uh, the payoff for the silly tag match. We talked about where they had little people and exploding boats that goes down at beach blast in Biloxi, Mississippi. They were only running the big towns, boys and girls. Sting and Davey on one side, Vader and Vicious on the other. The bad guys are not victorious here, but the match is pretty good for what it is. 16 minutes and 42 seconds, a three and three quarter star match. And then that would set up clash of the champions, August 18th, where Vader would retain his world title, pinning Davey boy Smith in 11 minutes and 11 seconds. Meltzer also a fan of that one, three and a half stars. I want to mention that there is this entire time we've been talking a bit of a debate in Japan about whether or not big van Vader has the rights to use the Vader gimmick. Do you remember any conversation or pushback about using the big van Vader gimmick, which was originally a new Japan creation, but now he's trying to do business in Japan as the UWFI since new Japan is a, an, 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 an ally, easy for me to say with WCW, maybe that's not that big of a deal. But when he starts to use it in Japan, not for new Japan, maybe that's a party foul. Do you remember any of this back and forth about well, using yeah, the Vader? I, I, I do to a degree. Now, again, that was, you know, and I'm not trying to look for a hall pass here, but 
that was way above my pay grade at sure. that point. Um, but I do recall it. And I also recall two things. One is New Japan had a really – until I got involved, and I put myself over, but up until – because we'll talk about this someday, the relationship between New Japan and I. Um, up until the time that I cemented the relationship with New Japan – the relationship between WCW and New Japan was really on again, off again. There was a lot of shenanigans on the WCW side of the equation that really pissed off the Japanese. So I don't want to paint the picture that New Japan and WCW were tight. They had done business together, but oftentimes they, you know, they'd shake hands, they do business together, and then you know, it was six months of bad blood. Because somebody felt like they didn't live up to the, the agreement. You know, doing business with the Japanese is an art into itself, especially back then. But so it was an, a very much an on again, off again, number one. Number two, I, rem I specifically recall one of the biggest issues was that big helmet, that big shoulder pad. Yep. You know, whatever, the, whatever you want to call that thing that he used to wear to the ring. That was really the crux of the issue. And I certainly wasn't aware of the politics between UWFI and New Japan, although I knew there was politics there and competition there, much like there probably was, you know, later on with WWE and, and WCW. So, I, but I don't understand the details. I'm sure Dave Meltzer does, and I'm not saying this to be a smartass. I'm sure he's much more familiar with it than I am because he was more interested in what was going on in Japan than I was at the time. But I do recall that there was a tremendous amount of discussion an angst over whether or not he could use the name Big Van Vader and or especially the gimmick. I know the gimmick was a real issue. I think they kept the gimmick in Japan, if I'm not mistaken. And then it was only after some pretty intense negotiations that New Japan allowed him to bring it over to the States. Let's get to Fall Brawl. Um, Meltzer would call this the worst war games ever. On one side, Sting, Dustin Rhodes, the Shockmaster, and Davy Boy Smith would take on Sid Vicious, Harlem Heat, and Big Van Vader, Shockmaster. I bet you wish we could just fucking take all this back, don't you? Well, <laughs> of course. But again, now, you know, Dusty was booking that at the time. Um, and it was what it was. You know, again, it's so easy. It's so easy for us to look back at some of the silly shit and be critical of it. And, and, and some of it deserves to be criticized. But if you look at what was working back then, goofy gimmick characters were working. You know, I think WWE was a template. You know, they had a lot of big, goofy, cartoonish characters. Um, and I think WCW was a poor man's WWE. It wasn't that the idea of a Shockmaster was that bad of an idea, but the execution of it was horrible. So when you're critiquing it, again, you got to go back in time and look at, you know, what else was on – what was working on television back in 1993, 1994? It was pretty cartoony, animated things. And I think that's what Dusty was trying to achieve with Shockmaster. But, yeah, I wish it would go away for everybody's sake, including Dusty's. <laughs> well, let me tell you. They went another direction. You want to talk about realism Saturday night, October 9th, Ricky steamboat gets a win over Vader by DQ. 
And after the match, Cactus Jack is here with a shovel and just nails Vader with it. And that sets up Halloween Havoc, spin the wheel, make the deal. It's a Texas death match is the way we we land here with Vader and Cactus Jack. They go 15 minutes and 59 seconds in what Meltzer would call a four and three quarter star match. I cannot recommend this enough. If you are not a uh, super Vader fan, or you're not really familiar with his work, I can't recommend enough that you go watch his strap match with sting at super brawl. And then later that year, check out Halloween havoc 93 him and cactus, man, they tore the house down. Did they not? They sure did. And again, that goes back to the chemistry we talked about. They both loved really physical, two tough guys that could take a ton of abuse. They were just impervious to pain. And they both loved those types of matches. And they they dished it out and they took it equally. It was pretty amazing. After this match, you guys would take a tour of Germany and we would see Vader wrestle Davy Boy Smith a lot on that tour, but this tour is mostly notable because this is where the unfortunate incident between Arn and Sid took place. I don't think you were there, but what did you hear about the stabbing incident? I actually got a phone call late at night. Um, I was in Atlanta and I got a phone call from Doug Dillinger, I believe. Might have been Doug. Might have been, might have been Janie. I can't remember because it was literally I was asleep and I got the phone call and started getting the, the rundown. And I got the call early on when, you know, they weren't sure, you know, if Sid was going to bleed out or not. You know, all they knew, you know, I got a phone call right after there was an incident. There was a stabbing. You know, Arn stabbed Sid Vicious. I was like, what the fuck? You know, I'm just trying to shake the cobwebs out of my head at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning whenever it was that they called me. And trying to figure out what was going on over there because everybody was pretty upset and emotional. And I got like two or three phone calls over the course of about 20 minutes or 25 minutes. And then it's, the picture started to become more and more clear that, you know, Sid was going to be okay, but he did get stabbed uh, with a pair of scissors by Arn. It was, it was freaky. It was just surreal to me that it would happen. You know, I mean, I've, I, you know, at that point, I had not been around as we refer to them so often, the boys. I, I hate calling them the boys. I've always hated that for well, some reason. Why though? You know what's you know what's saying that I really fucking hate? What? Like I really fucking hate it. Every time I hear it on TV, I want to throw the television out the goddamn window. I get so pissed off when I hear huh. it. Is the boys in the back. Oh, what the but- fuck is that? It sounds like a it's it sounds like a group of teenage musicians, the boys in the back. Russo used to say that all the time. He used to drive me fucking crazy. I really we wish you wouldn't have told me that because I can't help myself now. I'm sorry. The boys in the back. I'm here. I'm out here because the boys in the back want me to tell you. And it's like, oh, my God. I mean, it, when, when I hear that, I'm thinking, what are they, a bunch of little 12-year-old guys running around fighting over fucking Twinkies? The boys in the back. These guys are men. They're athletes. They're physical specimens. They're dangerous. They're not boys in the back, especially if you're not one of them. Now, if you're one of them and you want to refer to your peers as the boys in the back, by all means, 
Go forth and fucking prosper. Call them the boys in the back. But if you're a skinny little fucking dweeb, don't call them the boys in the back. If I was one of the boys in the back, when a guy like Russo or anybody else, an announcer or anybody referred to me as a boy in the back, I would have to come out and show them what a man in the in the locker room is all about. It just pisses me off. Anyway, I'm sorry. Whew. But yeah, it was astonishing to me at two or three o'clock in the morning after a series of two or three phone calls, the things would get so out of hand that somebody, <laughs> two guys would get in a fight and somebody would get stabbed. It blew my mind. So allegedly, um, Vader sees Sid doing what he described as the Frankenstein walk. And he notices that every time Sid's heart beats, uh, it pumps out like a nickel sized amount of blood out of Sid's stomach. So Vader puts his thumb in the hole to try to stop the bleeding a little bit until the ambulance comes and takes him away. What's your, what's your, uh, what's the protocol? I mean, what happens when there's a stabbing (laughs) chaos? I mean, that was kind of an all hands on deck, you know, first thing the next morning, Bill Shaw got involved in that one. He actually called me in. Um, he called everybody in on that one. Uh, even though I wasn't wrestling operations at the time, uh, that was a situation where, you know, we needed to get all of management on deck and try to figure out what to do, you know, and it was hard because none of us were there, you know, and it's, this is where situations like this or that was, I should say, um, become really, really tough because you can't take anybody's word for anything. You know, I knew it then. I know it even more now. Um, Everybody's drinking, which is a bad situation to begin with. Everybody's been on the road. Everybody's overseas. There's stress. There's fatigue. There's alcohol. There's God knows what else, you know, involved. Um, Well, it just is what it is. Um, and then you have something as serious as this, and you have to rely on eyewitnesses. Yeah, a lot of personalities involved back then. Right. A lot of, lot of, you know, they didn't call them clicks back then, but there were a lot of clicks involved back then. And I don't think you could listen to anybody and take anything that you had to, anything you heard from them, at face value in a situation like that. So that was a really, really tough spot. It was really tough. Let's get to clash of the champions. 25 it goes down November 10th in St. Petersburg, Florida. Vader would retain the WCW title by getting disqualified against Ric Flair and uh, a screw job finish that got three and a quarter stars. Um, the next show is the battle bowl pay-per-view, and this is a horrible concept. I think everyone agrees, or at least that's my take. You and I've never talked about it. Did you enjoy battle bowl? No, I didn't. You know, again, it was one of the determining factors early in my career in terms of not liking gimmick matches. And I understand it. You know, Dusty and I talked about it. Dusty's one of the guys, quite frankly, one of the things I do to this day believe in firmly that that really, you know, working with Dusty and under Dusty at the time, I I kind of learned and adapted was that pay-per-views need to have a theme. Otherwise, they're just a three-hour television show with more lights in a bigger venue than, you know, at that time it was center stage. Obviously anything is a bigger venue than center stage, but 
you know, Dusty really firmly believed that, you know, pay-per-views had to have their own personalities. I learned that from Dusty. And some of the stuff he tried, yeah, didn't work out so well. But, you know, that's that's the thing about being in that spot, you know, where you're the booker or you're the head writer or you're the executive producer or the showrunner, whatever you want to call it. Um, somebody has to sit in a chair and you can listen to five or six or 10 or 50 different people, however you want to operate. But you have to sit there at, at some point as the guy who's when the buck stops at, at your desk and you've got to figure out a way to make each one of those pay-per-views matter. Because at that time you're talking about 93, 94. Now, you know, pay-per-views were the only revenue that WCW had. There was no television licensing revenue because of our relationship with the, with the network. So we were producing the show for free, basically, um, for the network. There was no licensing. There was no merchandising. The ticket sales at the venues was almost non-existent. In fact, we were losing money domestically, which is why there was such an emphasis on Europe, because that was the only place we could go and actually attempt to make some money. Um, but pay-per-view was the only source of revenue. And of every month, those pay-per-views were basically the same format, same people, well, well mix them and match them in a different way, try to create little different storylines and personal issues. But Dusty's belief, and I agree with him, uh, agreed with him then, and, and I live by it now, is that a pay-per-view has to have a personality. But when you when that's your job, you know, you're going to miss a few. The only people that can say that, you know, that they've never made a creative mistake is someone that's never been in the business of creative. You know, sometimes things work, sometimes they, they don't. And Battle Bowl didn't. Cactus Shack and Vader would beat Harlem Heat. Uh, Vader is uh, the guy delivering the pinfall after a power bomb, and then that puts Vader and Jack in the Battle Bowl Battle Royal at the end, which Vader wins. It comes down to him and Sting, but Vader gets the win. The big show, though, that everybody really talks about uh, from the winner of '93 is Starcade '93, which goes down on December 27th in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the rumor and innuendo is that the plan is supposed to be Vader losing the WCW world title to Sid Vicious, but then overseas the stabbing happens. So they shift gears and WCW goes back to what they always used to do in Charlotte, North Carolina, put flair in the main event. Is that what happened? Yeah, I believe we suspended both Arn and Sid. I mean, because there was no way, and, I'm, and I could be wrong about that. I don't recall the exact details of the ramifications of that, but I think the answer to it was we're going to either fire them both or suspend them both. You know, I discreetly let Rick know because of his relationship with Arn that Arn just needs to take his take his lumps and he'll make his way back. It was my way of saying, don't worry about it. Just let this run its course, let the dust settle and he'll have a job. Um, because that was, that was the internal discussion that, that took place. But yeah, it was, and it was obvious. I mean, you're in Charlotte, you know, and it was Ric Flair. It's not just because we're in Charlotte, but it's Ric Flair. If we would have, if we would have had Starcade in Denver, we probably would have done the same thing. It would, it would have either been Rick or Sting. You know, or I guess, you know, Mick or Mick uh, or Cactus Jack. So there were three options. And obviously, if we're in Charlotte, Flair would make the most sense. 
What'd you think of the Starcade 93 match? I think a lot of people look at that as being, you know, one of their best matches, not just together, but independently. And I think one of the things that you guys did well, and this is probably on your watch was the way that you told the story throughout the pay-per-view. You start the show with old childhood photos of Ric Flair and, uh, remnants from his career. But then we see a series of sort of, uh, behind the scenes, almost like the way, uh, HBO and Showtime present boxing. Now uh, here we would see him saying goodbye to his family at the house and then riding with Mean Gene in a limousine to the building. And then he's got the family present after the match. It was a much different presentation for a world title match than we had seen in wrestling maybe ever before. Yeah. And that was, again, the intent there was to, and this is long before I ever had the thought of, you know, let's just be different than everybody else. And let's focus on reality. This is long before that, but at the same time, we wanted it to be believable. That's one of the things that I, that, that came with me from Vern. You know, Vern was not a big gimmick match, but Vern really believed in making the stories and, and the the presentation of the product. He was very limited. Vern, Vern didn't have the resources financially to do nearly the job that we could do at WCW, even back in 93. You know, he couldn't afford to do the kind of vignettes and build up. You know, he couldn't even afford to put on a pay-per-view for that matter. But even in, in his television show, although his television show didn't really represent Vern's philosophy – one of the things that I learned from Vern was if you can't make people believe that it's a real contest and there are real personal issues, um, then it's just it's just action for the sake of action. And with Rick, you know, we all recognize, not just me, but everybody in the company recognized that Rick was capable of delivering those real believable interviews, especially if it looked like, as it did in this case, Rick was up against a mountain. I mean, literally, he was up against a mountain of a man. So telling that real heartfelt story and bringing in his family and his relationship with Charlotte and, you know, the whole thing, uh, I think it just all added to it and, and made the payoff that much better. The story is tremendous because Vader had certainly been positioned as this monster who damn near killed Cactus Jack and has been dominating all of his opponents. He broke a dude's back in an enhancement match. And now here is the quote unquote aging veteran trying to do it one more time in his hometown. It's a cool story. The match gets four and a half stars. They go 21 minutes. And I guess really everyone knows that Flair's going to win, but you guys did a great job of uh, trying to build it to where it felt like an insurmountable task. I know we don't really talk about your opinion of matches very often. Where would you rank this match? for Ric Flair, as far as the, the matches that you saw that you were there for. In terms of, you know, it's hard for me to rank all of his matches over the years, but in terms of while I was in WCW, this has to be one of the best. Keep in mind, I wasn't there for a lot of the, the early sting and, and flair stuff that happened before I got there, uh, where flair actually made sting. Um, I wasn't there for that. So I can't count that. But in terms of, you know, when I was getting a paycheck from Turner, you know, this had to be, if not the one in the top two or three. I would agree, but we don't want to discount the contributions of Vader here. I, I want to just recap a barn burner of a match, a match that Meltzer says is the best strap match he'd ever seen at Super Brawl three with sting. 
Fast forward, it's four and three quarters in a Texas death match at Halloween Havoc against Cactus Jack. And then four and a half stars here with Ric Flair at Starcade. It's enough to win Vader, the Wrestling Observer Wrestler of the Year Award for 1993. And really, when you look around WCW in 1993, or for that matter, even the other promotion, the WWF, Vader's unanimous, in my opinion, Wrestler of the Year for 93. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, particularly because he was so big. I mean, that's, and I know, you know, Vader passed away recently, you know, not long ago, and everybody recognized him, you know, posthumously as being one of the biggest, one of the greatest big men in the business, and he was. There's no question about that. But if you go back and look at some, of the amazing things that he could do. I mean, he was doing Lucha stuff at 300 or 350 pounds or whatever he weighed. I mean, he was, he was doing amazing things at his, in his size. But, and we talked about the cactus Jack match and how brutal and how physical he could be. And he could, and he was, but he could also have a great working match with a guy like Ric Flair. Well, you know, we always talk about, and deservedly so, Rick could have a flair. Rick Flair could have a match with with anybody, and make it look like he he wrestled me and made it look like a decent match for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Rick. I mean, that's and we say that jokingly, and you know, it's easy to make fun of myself uh, in this case, but that's Rick. Rick could go out and have a great match. But, you know, look at look at what Rick did with Hulk Hogan. Right. With Hulk Hogan's limited abilities and you know work rates and all of the things, you know Hulk is not known for, um, but Rick was able to go out there and have a phenomenal match with with Hulk Hogan. Rick was able to have a phenomenal match with with Van Vader because Van Vader was capable of having a great match with Rick. I mean he it that was magic. It really was, and it we always talk about Rick, but I think this is a situation where you have to look at. Vader's not only his size and his strength and his brutality and the fact that he, you know, he could do crazy, you know, big moves as a big man, but he could also work in the technical sense, a great match with great psychology. Flair teams up with sting at the clash of the champions in January to take on Vader and rude. Our baby faces get the win after 22 minutes and 27 seconds. Meltzer liked the match. He gave it three and a quarter stars. And after the clash, they do an angle where the new commissioner, Nick Bockwinkle announces that the flair Vader match is going to be postponed until April due to an injury that happened at the clash and Vader afterwards would make some remarks to flair's wife and ends up in a confrontation with Ricky steamboat. And, uh, that sets up super brawl four, which goes down in Albany, Georgia flair beats Vader via referee stoppage in the thunder cage for the WCW world title. And boss is the referee here. Uh, yeah, that's the big boss man with a different name, three and a half stars here and a rather interesting finish. It sort of puts a bow on the Vader flair feud, and there's no real rematch after this on TV or pay-per-view. Why was it time to move on here? You know, I don't recall the thought process again, dusty was booking at that time. So I wasn't involved in, in the granular, you know, logic and reasoning behind moving on. I'm guessing that it had a lot to do with, you know, it was just, we, we needed to find something fresh. Right. We needed a new story. 
You can only you can only have those big matches. You know, we had Starcade in December. You can only continue a feud for three, four, five, six months until it starts feeling too redundant. No argument for me there. Um, let's talk about the uh, the match in March. You're back in Germany. It feels like you guys can't go to Germany without some shit happening. In 1993, there was a stabbing. Well, in Germany in 1994, Vader's working with Cactus Jack, and this is the famous match where Cactus has his ear ripped off. Uh, as a reminder, Cactus Jack at the time would do a spot where he would go over and out of the ring, and he would catch himself between the second and top rope. So the middle and top rope. And he sort of hangs himself there. Well, here the ropes are tightened more than normal and it pinches his fucking ear off. When you hear about this, I'm just curious the way it sort of trickles down and what Jim Cornette would call telephone, telegram, tele wrestler. How did you hear about cactus losing an ear in Germany? Yeah. Another phone call. Was it Germany or was it England? I thought it was, I thought we were touring both the UK and Germany, but I thought and I could be mistaken. I thought Cactus lost his ear in the UK. Either either way. Um, I heard about it on a phone call. It was like, oh, my God. And, you know, it's, again, it was Mick. You know, Mick was Mick was constantly – and I'm not saying he, he didn't put himself in this position, really. Um, the action was taking place in the ring where it was supposed to be taking place. Shit does happen. Accidents do happen. Injuries do happen. So I'm not being critical here, but you're asking for, you know, what was my reaction when I heard my reaction when I heard is, Oh my God, it's Mick once again, because he was so, he was so consistently putting himself in ridiculously risky situations that that was the first thing I thought. Now I, you know, once I found out how it happened and all that, it was just a very, very unfortunate situation. You know, I realized that it was really not Mick's fault, but my first reaction was, Oh my God, <laughs> what did he do this time? You know, type of thing. It's unfortunate, but that was my first reaction. Four days later, uh, they're doing a European cup final and sting finds himself working with Vader. And Vader breaks his eardrum in the match. Uh, this is a brutal tour here, but that's what Vader was doing, man. Let's get to spring stampede, which goes down on April 17th in Chicago. Vader would work with the boss. It gets a win with a moonsault after nine minutes and 17 seconds. Uh, ch chat me up about the boss. Uh, I know you guys are looking for something and some way to present the big boss man where the audience knows who it is. What'd you think of the boss? Eh, I was ambivalent about it. I didn't really, I, I didn't hate it. I didn't like it. It was just there. Didn't seem to be very creative. Um, it just, uh, it was cheap and easy. That's the best way I can say it. And, and I loved Ray. I mean, Ray was a phenomenal worker, a great talent, great talent and a hell of a guy. I ended up becoming pretty good friends with Ray. In fact, my son Garrett shot his first deer on a hunting trip with Ray Trailer and, and I, and uh, Rick Steiner actually. So we became friends, quite good friends, outside of the ring and outside of the business. But the gimmick, you know, calling him the boss was just like, eh, it was flat. I know you guys were involved in a lawsuit. Do you know any details? This is way before there is an issue with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. 
But when you guys are calling him the boss, Titan has something to say about that. Any memories of that? I, I know that it happened and I know it was an issue because we had to change the gimmick, but I, that was, you know, above my pay grade at the time. I was just aware of it. I wasn't involved in it, but I was certainly aware of it. Well, Vader was aware that he broke his fucking wrist in this match. The dude was leaving it all in the ring. Uh, on April 20th, he would get a win uh, over Max Payne. And then they're going to run a house show nine days later, this time in Charlotte. And it'll be the first time that they have come back to Charlotte post Starcade. So they do a rematch with Flair and Vader. It only draws 1,900 fans for $17,000. If you had to put your, you know, if you had to put your name on the line here, why do you think the house show with a match that did such tremendous business for Starcade really sort of fizzles? Because the house show business and the way it was operated and the logic behind it and everything associated with it was just so dysfunctional. It, it you know, and that, that, that's again one of these things, and I can go off on. We could do a two-hour show just on the way. WCW used to operate and how ridiculous it was when I first got there and, 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 and while I was there to a degree, but the house show business, I think was probably of all the flawed things about WCW. Um, I think the house show house show business was probably one of the most flawed. The people that were running it didn't really know what they were doing. Um, they were just on cruise control. They didn't really care. They weren't really motivated to figure it out. They blamed the lack of their success in the house shows uh, on television. Television would blame it on the fact that they couldn't get a crowd in the, in the arena to tape a show that would actually look good because nobody showed up. So it was this constant pointing back and forth and blaming back and forth. Uh, it was a political ping pong match. And, and really, though, it, it really came down to the way that the house show business ran. Um, Early on, and this is something that really stuck with me long before I ever thought I'd get into management. I didn't aspire to get into management at WCW. I didn't aspire when I got there to be an executive producer or to you know, end up in a front office position. I was just thrilled with my $70,000 a year as a C-Squad announcer. I had no aspirations of doing anything other than that. But I was exposed to so much because, again, going back to what we talked about early on in this podcast, you know, the way I came in and being able to be a fly on the wall, because that's really what I was in, in, in most situations, it really gave me an opportunity to observe things and the way things were done. It's one of the things I did with Vern. When I worked for Vern, I had this unique opportunity because Vern didn't have any money. He was already running out of resources, which is the only reason he hired me, by the way. If Vern would have had the money to hire somebody that was actually qualified to head up their syndication and sales division, they would have done it, and I would have got the opportunity. If Vern would have actually had the budget to hire a decent announcer um, to, to host the ESPN show and do car, do play by play. I would have never gotten the opportunity, but the fact is he didn't have any money. And I was the only guy that was willing to do it for next to nothing. And, and in the process, I was able to learn. I was able to, in the AWA offices say, you know what? I have no fucking idea how television is actually produced. I watch it. I use this analogy all the time. It's like a microwave oven. Everybody has one. Everybody uses them, but nobody could probably tell you how they work. Right. You just put your food in, press a couple buttons, it comes out hot. They, no, they don't even wonder about how it happens. And I've always been the kind of person that has wondered, how does that actually work? 
how does TV work? I grew up, you know, I grew, I'm a product of the 50s and the 60s. Television was like the centerpiece of our family's lives back in the 60s and even into the 70s. So I was fascinated with how it works. So because I was, because that was my nature, because I had the unique opportunity to learn, I could sit in an edit booth and I learned how to edit television. I'd sit up all night, you know, and, and duplicate tapes uh, just because I wanted to learn how to thread a, a three-quarter inch tape machine because I was fascinated by that. And and because I was able to learn the processes in, in almost every level I was capable of learning in an AWA because it was limited opportunities. So they didn't have a, a pay-per-view division. They didn't have licensing and merchandising. But in terms of television, I was able to learn a ton at a very basic level. And when I got to WCW, that same kind of characteristic, you know, existed. So I would, as a fly on the wall, I would just watch and I would learn. And I'd ask questions in, in, a, in a very, you know, non-political way. And one of the things that, you know, WCW did, and it always made me, it just made me shake my head because they, they'd go to an event, a big pay-per-view, for example. Now, in a pay-per-view you want it to look good on camera. And I understand that from a television perspective. I certainly understood that. But they didn't know how to promote. The product wasn't hot, number one, and number two on television. But number two, they didn't know how to promote. They tended to go to the same cities over and over and over again. They went to Greenville. They went to Asheville. They went to Charlotte. You know, they, they went to Albany. They went to Biloxi. They went to Huntsville. You know, they went to the same markets. And why? Because it's fucking easy. Right. They didn't have to do any work. They didn't have to get to know another venue. They didn't have to go into that venue and spend three or four or five days talking to different radio and newspaper people and trying to figure out where the best places to put your advertising was. That's actually work. And the people that were running the house show business at that time, um, you know, the, from when I got there, it, it, up until and including the time you're talking about right now, were essentially lazy fuckers that didn't want to do the work. And what would happen is you'd go to a big pay-per-view. Say we had the big pay-per-view in Charlotte when in December or January or February or March, whenever the fuck it was. And then they would paper the house because they wanted it to look good on TV. So they'd give the tickets away. Well, guess what happens? It's like when I tried to – I used to explain this to people this way or in, even in WCW. Bob Dew. I, you know, I'd sit down with Bob Dew and I'd say, Bob, this is really simple. You'll understand this. Imagine, Bob, you're out of town. You go to a five-star hotel. You're sitting at the bar, and there's a beautiful young woman. You end up having a couple of cocktails. She invites you up to the room. You find out she's going to be there for the next three or four nights, and wow, everything is great. You go, you go about your business the next day. You come back, and she's at the bar again. And you have a couple of cocktails, and boom, it's rinse and repeat. You're back up in the room having a great time. The third night, the same thing happens. You're on a roll. The fourth night, you both know you're going to leave the next day. You say, hey, honey, you want to have a cocktail? We'll go up to the room. And she says, well, that'll be $500. Well, wait a minute. I had it for three, for free, three nights in a row. Now you're going to charge me 500 bucks? And that was the same thing that WCW was doing. You know, it's a crude analogy, but it's the same thing. Once you give people something for free and then turn around and try to charge them for it, they go, nah, I'll just wait till next time. <laughs> I'll get it for free next time. And that's what was happening with WCW house shows. They, 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 they papered so many houses for such an extended period of time that when they'd go out on tour and they actually were trying to sell tickets, they had conditioned the market to go, nah, that's free. I'll wait for it. It'll come back and I'll be able to get a free ticket next time. 
And that's really what happened in, in the situation that you're talking about. The house show business was decimated because it was so poorly managed. Let me just clap for a minute. Uh, you know, I never imagined that a couple of weeks ago on the show, we would talk about prostitutes at the bar at Halloween. Havoc. I didn't say she was a prostitute. I mean, she may have, may have not have been a prostitute just because she asked for 500 bucks doesn't mean she was a hooker. No, no, no. And I'm not saying I'm, it ever really happened. I'm, I'm just, referencing it's just an analogy. I'm making it up. I'm <laughs> referencing Halloween havoc where oh, okay. you told the story about all the, in the bars in Vegas and the girls would see the guys and blah, blah, blah. And now two weeks later, here we are again, I'm seeing a pattern here. And this is, uh, this is 83 weeks after dark. I like it. Uh, <laughs> it's life, brother. Come on. It's life. It's, it's human nature. We can all relate to it in one way, shape, or form. Well, what else is life is an injury that can sideline a guy. And unfortunately that happened with Rick Rude. Meltzer would report that there was supposed to be a singles title match, a big situation here with Vader and Rick Rude. And of course, at the time, Rick Rude is the international champion. He's got the old big gold belt that's back floating around now. Uh, you can no longer call it the NWA. That's a story for another time. However, he's injured in his match with Sting over in Japan. And so now that there is a question of, will this Rick Rude Vader match happen? Of course it does not. Instead at Slamboree, we see sting work with Vader. Can you confirm that the original plan was supposed to be Vader and Rick rude? I can't, I honestly can't. I wasn't booking it at the time. So I, I can't, I wasn't, I can't, can't, can't confirm it. Can't deny it. It goes down on May 22nd in Philadelphia and sting pins Vader to either win or maintain whatever you'd prefer to talk about there. The international title in 13 minutes and 54 seconds. It's pretty well received. It gets three and a quarter stars. And Vader would say that he felt like his feud with Sting is one of the best in the history of wrestling and certainly his favorite feud. He said he never had a bad match with Sting and working with Sting was uh, the gold star for him. Uh, he also has an opportunity to head over to Japan in late June and do a movie called fist of the North star, which I never saw. Did you see fifth fist of the North star? No, no, me neither. I think, I, I'm, I'm going to look for it, but no. Yeah. It may have been like, um, a three ninjas movie for me. I don't know. Let's get to bash at the beach. We've got Vader beating guardian here. Uh, the guardian angel. He's no longer the boss. Uh, they're going to go seven minutes and 58 seconds. And this is really the tale of, of two Vaders here because he's working for small crowds against some questionable matches here, you know, DQ finishes with the guardian angel, but then less than a month later, he's in the best of the world tournament for the UWFI and he's working as super Vader here and he's beating Takata to win the title in front of the Budokan hall where there's a sellout crowd, more than 16,000 fans. Vader's really the only guy I can think of in the nineties who had that old 1980s style schedule where you could be a big star here, but then you could go to Japan and make real money. But allegedly he's a top guy in both spots. It's a unique position for Vader here in 94. Am I right? Yeah, you are. And as a 94, because of that was really when I first started going over to Japan and, and, and really trying to figure out the difference between what was working in Japan 
and what was working here in the States. Because, you know, it, it not only was WCW's business flat, almost non-existent in, in almost every respect other than really, really moderate pay-per-view revenue, WWE wasn't setting the house on fire either. You know, they were spending a lot more time over in Europe because their house show business was down. Um, yeah. It was the business, the prognosis for the business in 94, in 93, 94 was really not that good. And in the same time, I'd be hearing about all the stuff that was going on over in Japan. And again, primarily through um, my relationship with Brad Reigns, as we discussed earlier in this podcast. And that's when I started going over there and I really wanted to rebuild the relationship between New Japan and, and WCW because they were doing such phenomenal, you know, everybody was doing such phenomenal business over there. And I wanted to learn how and why. And, and it was really because of Vader. That was what motivated me because I kept hearing about how well he was doing over there. Well, things are uh, a little different here. I guess I should mention that at this time, Vader has had 11 different world heavyweight title reigns trailing only like Ric Flair, Vern Gagne and Kinect. Uh, so he is, uh, on quite the tear come September of that year though. 94, you guys do a Hulkamania tour in England throughout most of that card or most of that tour. Rather you'd see Vader working with guardian angel. Of course he's getting wins almost every night. Let's get to fall brawl, uh, on September 18th in Roanoke, Virginia. Vader's involved. Wait a minute, in a, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean we did a tour over in Europe and nobody got stabbed or nobody lost a body part? Things are a changing, brother. Fucking awesome. This three-way match here, uh, they're calling it a triangle match, is Guardian Angel, Sting, and Vader. Uh, ultimately, the winner here is to determine who is going to get a shot at Hulk Hogan's world title come Starcade. Vader gets the win in a three and three-quarter star match. But Vader Hulk does not happen at Starcade '94. Was that one of the things you guys talked about? It was, it was, and I don't remember why it didn't happen. Um, there were no issues between the two. There had to have been something creative involved. But uh, yeah, we did talk about it. We certainly saw that as a as a big matchup. Well, and, the even the poster. Um, it says it's a triple threat, one historic night, two intense to believe three main events. And it's got the numbers one, two, three. And the three guys on the poster are Hulk Hogan, Vader and sting in that order. But instead of Vader getting the payoff of this fall brawl match where he's supposed to get a world title shot, it goes to Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake instead. That's right. The butcher headlined to Starcade. And Nashville, I can't wait to talk about that sometime with you. Um, Meltzer sort of knew that may have been the situation because he even wrote in the observer in early October, looks like Hogan versus Vader at Starcade, which means Hogan won't be dropping the strap. Why do you think that Vader, you know, being in the world title match automatically, I mean, Meltzer just very matter of fact, which means Hogan won't be dropping the strap. That to me is a little interesting because why would he, do you think, do you think Meltzer just assumed here Vader is not the guy you guys are looking for at this point, or is there so much money invested in Hulk? He's gotta be the featured guy. I think it's a little bit of both in fairness to Dave. The 
again, the context, Hulk was brand new to the company for the most part. He'd only been there for a few months. There was a big investment. Not only the, you know, the money, it's not just the money was the investment. The perception of having Hulk Hogan was the real investment. Sure. The marketing, the promotion, all the ancillary business to business opportunities that we were trying to create was the real investment in Hulk Hogan beyond just the, 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 the face value of his contract. And the feeling was we hadn't really maximized that. It wasn't going as well as we hoped it would go. And we weren't where we wanted to be yet with Hulk. And it was too premature for him to not be the world heavyweight champion of the face of the company. It had nothing to do with Hulk. You know, is Dave, I'm, I don't know whether he said it or not or wrote it or not or implied it or inferred it, which is usually what he did or does. Um, it was not about Hulk's ego and – you know, he, well, he, Hulk didn't make it a dollar more holding the title or a dollar less if he didn't. So it wasn't that. It was, wait a minute, this, we brought this guy in because we, we need him to help change the perception of this company because it's the shits. And we weren't where we wanted to be yet. So it was more of a tactical decision than a creative one or a personal one. Let me mention this. It was written Vader ensured them. He was willing to work a lot lighter with Hogan, which is one of the reasons Hogan originally balked at doing the program. The original plan was for Hogan to drop the strap to sting at Starcade, but you know how those original plans go. So two things to talk about here. What was not the original plan. That was, I mean, that's a false premise. It's, it's false. So it's hard to talk about it. In, in any great detail, because it starts out being completely false. This is a little bit more like Davy Boy Smith was going to be the fourth man in the NWO that we talked about last week. It's not true. There was never a plan, a definitive plan for Hulk Hogan to drop the belt to anybody. What about and, the the concern? Because this is a real concern. I mean, and we've talked about this before in a different way where one of the things that Kevin Sullivan was tasked with doing was making Hulk comfortable. And he wanted to work with guys that he trusted. And you've even talked about here on the show that he could be fairly paranoid at different times and wasn't really sure who he could trust. So a lot of the times he wound up being booked with his friends because he felt like they would do business, et cetera, et cetera. Was there a concern from Hulk's side since Vader did work a stiffer style and he had injured some dudes that maybe this was not the right look for Hulk. <laughs> See, I mean, that's Conrad. And I really appreciate the question. And I know what the intent of the question is, but the, the way that position, the, that question was positioned is, well, Hulk was paranoid. No, Hulk was not paranoid. Hulk wanted to work with people that he knew were professional, that he knew could make him look good. Hulk was well aware of his strengths and his weaknesses, and he wanted to work with people that could camouflage his weaknesses and, and, and amplify his strengths. That's just being a pro. It's, it just is what it is. That's why he, he didn't want to work with Ric Flair because they were friends. He wanted to work with Ric Flair out of the shoot because he knew that Rick could do exactly what I described. Hulk was well, you know, and that's the perception. It's one of the reasons I guess I still harbor sometimes so much, um, Resentment um, because of the way the dirt sheets back in the day kind of framed this news. You know, Hulk, you know, didn't want to drop the strap. Well, the inference is he's a greedy fucker and just doesn't want to share. That's the inference. Right. Or 
Hulk was not really sure he wanted to work with Vader because Vader worked too stiff. Well, what have we just been talking about for the last 35 or 45 minutes? You mean the guy, you know, who, whose back he broke or, you know, the, uh, Sting's eardrum that got broken or, you know, there was a lot of severe injuries there. You know, the, I mean, come on, Vader did work stiff. Hulk was not interested in working that way. So it's not that Hulk didn't want to work with Vader. He did. And they did. But he wanted to make sure that Vader was going to have his head on straight and not try to over-impress anybody with physicality because that's not what Hulk Hogan did. Hulk Hogan was a character. He wasn't a McFoley that wanted to go out and throw himself into a, a, a but, fucking ring full of broken glass and tacks and jump off a balcony and end up with 65 stitches in his head. That wasn't the kind of match Hulk wanted to have. And, and he needed he wanted to be sure when he got in the ring with people that they were people that would complement the kind of match he knew he could do best. After all of that explanation, all you've done is confirm what Meltzer said was true. No, it's not. And look, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that Hulk was concerned that their styles were not compatible, but it's the way you frame it. Oh, here's what was written. Vader. One way of that, framing it is that Hulk's a chicken shit. I didn't that say, wasn't the case. No, I didn't say that. No, you I implied Vader ensured them that he was willing to work a lot lighter with Hogan, which is one of the reasons Hogan originally balked at doing the program. I don't think, I mean, listen, I'm a giant. I'm only a wrestling fan because of Hulk Hogan. I'm not going to get on here and say Hulk Hogan's a pussy. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is what was written. And so when no, I know, and I'm not saying you're saying it, but you're, you're, you're reading it to me as it was written and the way it was written implies as such, right? Hulk would get in the ring with any, I mean, look at some of the matches that Hulk had over in Japan, right? You talk about brutal, physical, fucking tough ass matches. Hulk was perfectly capable of having that type of match. Even in WCW, he just knew it wasn't the best match for him and his character. That's all. And yeah, Vader, Vader thought, and you know, when, when Hulk balked, not balked, when Hulk pointed out it's too early for Vader. Vader assumed, and I, I did have conversations with, with Vader about this. Vader assumed it was because Hulk didn't want to have a match with him because he was afraid that Vader couldn't really work the kind of match that Hulk needed to work. That wasn't the case. We just agreed it was too soon, period. Not for any other reason. Not because you know Hulk was afraid that you know Leon wouldn't work light enough or Vader wouldn't work light enough or would take liberties or any of that kind of stuff it was just too soon that's all let's talk a little bit about Halloween Havoc October 23rd in Detroit Vader gets a win over the Guardian Angel Meltzer would write Angel got no reaction coming out while Vader seemed to almost get a face pop two and three quarter stars here and now let's talk about the observer from October 31st quote, all plans for Hogan versus Vader matches were dropped. Three guesses. First two don't count no word on Starcade, but figure it'll be either Hogan versus butcher or avalanche or a tag with sting the 1113 Orlando show, which was originally supposed to be the first Hogan Vader is now Hogan and sting versus butcher and avalanche. The match will also headline the only other two house shows Hogan will work this year, December 28th in Minneapolis and the 29th in Chicago. Uh, and then when we fast forward later in the month, we see a promo on WCW Saturday night 
And this is what Meltzer wrote about it. Vader did interviews talking about challenging Hulk Hogan. As the story goes, Vader was told that him versus Hogan was money in the bank, but they were going to hold it off. Vader did interviews teasing it for the future, but then certain people went to the office and demanded the interviews never go on the air. I guess because they don't want someone teasing a match that isn't going to transpire. I'll let you respond. It's hard to respond to that. Number one, I don't know if it's true. I don't recall Vader doing a bunch of interviews about a match that may happen in sometime in the future. Assuming he did, because I, I have to assume that it's true, because I don't know that it is, but just for the sake of discussion, um, I would have I, I would have killed it. Why would you waste time talking about sure. something that may or may not happen in the future? That doesn't make any sense. No, I, I'm not arguing that. It makes total sense. Let's talk about Clash of the Champions 29, Jacksonville, Florida. Vader gets a win over Dustin Rhodes, and uh, Meltzer loved it. Says it was easily the best match at the show and gave it three and a half stars. We'd see Vader in the next match, which was Duggan defending the U.S. title against Steve Austin, and eventually Austin's going to blow his knee out and be limping noticeably here. For a lot of reasons, uh, it made sense to have Vader charge the ring for a DQ, but Vader had never challenged for the, for the U S title, but now he finds himself sort of in the mix a little bit. Um, they would work Saturday night where Duggan would beat Vader by DQ with the U S title on the line. And then Vader would get a win over Dustin Rhodes. And this is where we would see Vader and Harley race do an interview and Colonel Parker and Ming are going to come out. And then everybody starts arguing about who has the better stable and then they have a Ming Vader face-off that doesn't really ever pay off. Were there ever any plans for a Vader Ming match? That could have been fun. Yeah, it could have been fun. I don't think there was any real plans for it, but it was it was a natural one, I think, for everybody to look because they're two. You, you would think, you know, just on paper, you know, Vader given his reputation and Ming given his. But here's the problem, and I love Ming. I still see him out on the road, you know, three or four times a year, and he's just. He's one of the sweetest people you'll ever meet in or out of the ring. Um, but, you know, Ming had this amazing reputation internally with with his peers, right? The guys that he worked with, the guys that he rode with, the guys that had seen him in action, you know, in and out of the arena. So everybody knew he was a badass. But the audience didn't. You know, the announcers would put it over. They would make references to it. But the, the, the television audience just – he was never really made out to be, as a character, the monster that he really was in life. So you'd get into those situations where you put those two together and it's kind of like you know, you're working yourself a little bit and you'd see – they go, oh, man, that could be great. But it, the, there was never really any plans to execute it on a, a much higher level other than maybe a television match or a series of matches. But it was never going to be billed as a, you know, a big pay-per-view matchup. Let's get to Starcade. Uh, the main event again is Hulk Hogan and the Butcher. Uh, Vader, who was originally talked about for that spot and actually won a match for the right to challenge, doesn't wind up challenging for the world title, but he does win the United States title. It's his first, his only reign as U.S. champion, and he had to beat Jim Duggan here. He does so in 12 minutes and six seconds. It only gets a star and a half. Uh, and at the end of the show, Meltzer would write in the post-match interview in the face dressing room, Vader and race come out and Vader challenges Hogan to a match. It was easily the highlight of the show, although not for Gene Okerlund, 
who was in poor physical health to begin with. And Vader brushed aside pretty hard and Okerlund lost his composure on the air at the end. So it looks like we're finally setting up Hogan Vader. And of course we know it's going to happen at super brawl in Baltimore. Why did it make sense for super brawl, but maybe not at Starcade? If you're anti Hulk Hogan and I'm not, I'm a Hogan Mark. A lot of guys would say he was just looking to take care of his buddy and get his buddy a payoff at Starcade. Well, if you were to suggest that Hogan wanted to give his buddy a payoff at Starcade, you'd be wrong on two counts. One is there was no payoff at Starcade. That suggests that there's a bonus or there's a payoff of some sort, whatever that may be, tied to that particular event. And there wasn't any. So the very premise is completely false. It's without any substance to it. So let's just start and end with that. Let's talk about uh, another report from Meltzer, since we're on a roll here with all our Meltzer talk. When Bischoff was in Japan, he was asked about being involved, but they only wanted a Hulk Hogan versus Vader match from WCW which he said they could have for the right price. However, the political problems and putting that match together in Japan are huge. You'd have to not only get both new Japan and UWFI to agree to allow it, but also convince Vader to do the job more than that. Unless WCW or new Japan buys out Vader's $35,000 per match contract with UWFI, you have to convince UWFI to allow one of their top draws to do a job for Hogan, which is slightly less likely to happen during this time frame than Hogan agreeing to do the job. Do you remember Japan sort of hinting that they might want to see Hogan Vader over there in new Japan? You know, I had several meetings with, uh, Saito, who was the, one of the executives in new Japan at the time, who was really in charge of matchmaking between new Japan wrestlers and American wrestlers. So Brad Ringens was involved in these discussions. Masa Saido was involved in these discussions. Um, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Baisho, who just died about a year ago, was involved in those discussions. I didn't see Meltzer there. He was not in the fucking room. Now, not only was Meltzer not there, so I'm not sure how we possibly reported on what New Japan w- would have been hinting at or what they were n- trying to negotiate for. And I just don't know how that would have happened. I'm pretty sure Masa Saito wasn't talking to Meltzer. I know for a fact that Brad Ringens wasn't. And Mr. Baisho didn't speak English. So I'm guessing that's just more, you know, fantasy booking, if you will, or fantasy news from, from Dave Meltzer. It never happened. That, that discussion never took place. So all the permutations and the complexities of what had to happen in order to make a match that was never discussed happen are just – it's just filler. It's just Dave fantasy. It's Meltzer fantasy. Never happened. It was never a discussion. Meltzer would also report that uh, Vader tried to make a play to get his current contract, which had two years remaining extended for another three years. He wrote, don't know details of that, but one could surmise the play was in exchange for putting Hogan over clean. Do you remember Vader trying to negotiate a contract extension prior to super brawl? Uh, no, I don't. And that doesn't mean it didn't happen. 
you know, I'm not trying to beat up on Dave all the time. It could have, it could have been a discussion that took place between someone, between Vader and and whoever represented him, and somebody in WCW. It would not have been me at the time, and I'm not saying it didn't happen. It could have, but this is the first I'm hearing about it, and I can guarantee you it would have had nothing to do with putting Hogan over. That I would have heard about. If it would have had to do with Hogan, I would have heard about it. If that would have been a negotiation or discussion, somebody would have had to come to me because I had the relationship with Hulk. I was involved in bringing Hulk in. Even though I wasn't involved in other contract negotiations at that time, that's that's an issue that if it would have been discussed, would have ended up at least on my desk for my opinion, and it never did. Let's talk about Super Brawl. February 19th in Baltimore. You guys air one hour live on the main event show, which Meltzer would say is a great idea. Uh, and the highlight is Vader's arrival, which way, which they tease is in a limo with Ric Flair. And then another limo arrive, which Vader thinks is Hogan and Vader punches through the limo window, causing Tony Schiavone to run off. And this segment winds up getting replayed several times. We also see Bagwell and the Patriot get a win over Romeo Valentino and Dino Casanova. But really that's in the background. It's a reason for Vader to come out and destroy all four guys after the match, including handing out some power bombs for your trouble. The actual match itself. We see Hogan get a win over Vader by DQ in 15 minutes and 10 seconds And the match gets a good review in the observer three and a quarter stars. Get a little bit of uh, Ric Flair interference here that, fi- that finally happened. What'd you think? Super brawl. Hogan Vader. I thought it was decent. I thought the buildup was good. I thought it lived up to its expectations. Uh, that's all I can say about it. I mean, it wasn't the greatest thing that we ever saw. It wasn't a great pay-per-view for us financially. So it didn't stand out from that respect. Uh, but I think the, the, the buildup to it in the match itself, uh, probably over delivered on expectations. One of the things that Meltzer says was suggested, uh, supposedly the finish of the Hogan Vader match was originally a double juice with Nick Bockwinkle or the commission stopping the match to set up a no stopping for blood uncensored strap match, but circumstances over the past week dictated that they had to nix the idea of getting any sort of juice and they go to plan B, but they say this is particularly challenging because politically it's hard to get a clean job out of either guy because Vader is a title holder over in Japan. Do you remember a blood finish being discussed for this one? Could have easily been discussed. Um, but again, I, and I think what Dave is alluding to there, I'm, I'm guessing I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but there was a constant back and forth between blood and no blood. Right. Um, WWE was firing off all kinds of ridiculous letters and, you know, chastising WCW for the use of blood. And we, you know, we'd quit doing it and then they'd do it. You know, it's, so there was a, there was a big back and forth over the issue, but blood was a particularly sensitive issue in, in WCW charter broadcasting, I should say. So it, it, it worked its way down to WCW and yeah, blood was an issue and it might've been discussed. I'm not saying it wasn't, I wouldn't have been involved in it other than, you know, the guy in charge of television, you know, the word coming down to me was no blood on TV. So that was communicated to Dusty and, and to the talent. It doesn't matter. You guys can talk about it all you want. We can't do it. And if it happens, I had d- given direction to our cameraman, handheld and otherwise, 
if you have to turn around and shoot a kid picking his nose in the fourth row because that's all you got, you know, shoot the kid picking his nose. Do not shoot blood. Now, if it happened incidentally in, in a real situation, try to cover it as best you can. Don't zoom in on it. Don't make a big deal over it. You know, you don't have to shoot away from it. But if it's two guys out there, you know, cutting their heads open and blading for drama, then, you know, shoot the kid picking his nose. Wow. February 25th at a Saturday night taping flair is introduced as Vader's new manager and Hulk Hogan comes out during their interview with the strap and they have a confrontation. Of course, we're setting up the strap match and they even do this. Um, a lot of house show business here. You talk about the house show business being down. Well, how about on February 25th in Chicago that night, they work a match for the U S title with Hogan and Vader and Hogan gets the win by count out. It's a $99,000 house, more than 5,000 tickets sold. Hogan's even getting color in the match. The next night they do it again, this time in Detroit to diminishing returns, 3,500 tickets, $52,000. Vader's working with Doug and otherwise on all the house shows, uh, and then has an opportunity to pin the Patriot in March on Saturday night. And after the match, here comes Hogan and Jimmy Hart with a run in and they're whipping him with the strap. And there's been lots of talk in the observer as we head towards uncensored that maybe they're going to bring in the road warriors to feud with a new version of the four horsemen. I mentioned this because Vader's name is floated as being one of the horsemen. This is in the observer. The new horseman would be Ric Flair and Arn Anderson for sure. And probably Steve Austin as the third member names speculated as the fourth member were Vader, Dustin Rhodes, or Tully Blanchard. The latter considered an extreme long shot, man. What a fucking version of the horseman that would have been. If it's flair, Anderson, Austin, and Vader, why didn't it happen? I don't know that it was ever really discussed just because Dave wrote about it. Doesn't mean it was true. I don't recall that being discussed. You know, it's not like, uh, it may have been battered around. Maybe dusty floated it around. Maybe the guys brought it to dusty. Maybe there was some discussion about it that made its way to Dave, but it never was anything that was serious enough that made its way to, to me, meaning nobody ever said, here's what we're going to do. Let's get to work. Have your team put together graphics and some videos, and we're going to build this new horseman angle. You know, there's a lot of things that I'm sure were discussed, um, between the guys, you know, in a car on their way to buildings and in the office and pitched to dusty or pitched to the locker room to each other, um, that never really became a reality. And this probably falls into that category. I cannot wait to talk to you about uncensored and Tupelo. I'm sure we're going to cover this in long form. Sometimes we finally get Hogan and Vader in the strap match. Hogan gets a win over Vader by dragging Ric Flair around to all four corners. I'll say that one more time. <laughs> Hulk Hogan beat Vader in the strap match by dragging Ric Flair around to all four corners. The fucking renegade is here coming out to almost identical music as the ultimate warrior running around like the ultimate warrior. Oh, we're not done by the way. We've also got the black scorpion coming out. Uh, this is one shit show. I can't wait to actually make you sit down and watch with me, but at least for now, Give me the cliff notes version of why this was a good idea. And before you do, I want to say Meltzer gave it three and a half stars, which I can't fucking believe. <laughs> you are, you amaze me. You know, you make me laugh and you make me cringe. Simultaneously. 
it's like on the outside I'm laughing because it's truly funny the way you describe it and it and I can picture it and it is just so it's a kaleidoscope of chaos but deep down inside I'm going oh god I gotta talk about this <laughs> I hate sure. it uh, there's your cliff notes you know I don't know why it made sense I'd have to go back and look at the buildup you know was Rick involved was is he involved in the story or not you know, on the surface, without going back and looking at the buildup and, you know, the stipulations, if there were any involving Rick, I'm assuming there were, but there might not have been. Um, but let's just assume for, you know, discussion's sake that there was some some kind of Ric Flair stipulation in there. or Maybe Rick got involved. I don't know. I don't know. I can't even imagine at this point. I'm a pretty creative guy, but I can't even I can't even try to come up with something that would have made sense. But let's assume that there might have been at least something that came close to making sense. Um, he certainly isn't going to drag Leon around. <laughs> that would have been, you know, less television friendly for sure. Let's talk about, uh, the decision to strip Vader of the U S title. It happens as a way to get the belt onto Sting without Vader having to lose, which technically he can't do because he's a title holder in Japan and they take it very seriously. So they're going to have a tournament, which will climax at the June pay-per-view. And that's where Sting will actually win the thing. Uh, I do want to mention that on April 20th, he finally does lose the pro wrestling world title for the UWFI to Takata. Uh, and shortly thereafter, it's reported in the observer that Vader was asked to turn babyface, which he says makes no sense on the surface. But if you think about who's running the company, it makes perfect sense. Because as a baby face, there will be no clamor for Hogan Vader. I know you're going to laugh at that. It's just, it, I mean, it's, it's so ridiculous. It's not even worth commenting on anymore. Dave is going to take as many shots as he, he did. This is past tense. Obviously he didn't write this yesterday, but Dave would take every opportunity to bury Hogan at every opportunity, either by making shit up didn't happen or framing things that did happen in the worst possible way. And that, I mean, that's all I can say about that. I'm, I mean, I'm actually tired of kicking Dave in the balls. It's just, it, it, it's getting boring for me too. And I'm sure it's boring for the listeners. I just can't add credibility or react in a credible way to things that are incredible or non-credible in this case. It's just, it is what it is. That's the kind of thing when we talk about, yeah, it's one thing to report on a situation, but when you put so much of your own personal animus in all of the, the description and the, the, the false premise that's surrounding a situation, it just becomes so obvious and people are going to, you know, spend their 10 bucks a month to read this stuff and they're going to feel like they know something they really don't. And that's fine. Power to them. But you should be able to see by now in just going back and reading the things that he's written about Hogan. It's all designed to make Hogan look bad. Hogan didn't run the company. No, Hogan didn't run the company, but the inference is that he was right. He wasn't, but I mean, that's the kind of thing that just, it just, yeah, I throw my hands up. Fuck it. Stay Belser doesn't mean anything. It's incredible. Non-credible. Uh, Vader appears on boy meets world on May 5th. And then he's on to slam on May 21st in St. Petersburg. Here we see Hogan and Savage team up to beat flair and Vader. 
in 18 minutes and 57 seconds. Once again, Hogan beats flair, uh, which seems like a trend here. Uh, I do want to mention that this is where, and we just talked about this before we see Paul white, uh, as we get a couple of glimpses of him. And this is also where we have Angelo Poffo involved and you're involved. Uh, to the point that, uh, Dave Meltzer would write, what is true is that WCW did perhaps it's sleaziest come on to date, which covers a lot of ground in a last minute tease before the show started. It started with an angle in the live main event where Vader attacked both Nick Bockwinkle and Eric Bischoff, and then was attacked from behind by Hogan. And the two wound up in a pull apart as the live show was in its closing seconds. Vader came out again, demanding for Bischoff to have the match with Hogan to take place right now. And Bischoff said, as we speak, Bockwinkle is in a meeting with Hogan and Jimmy Hart and Vader again, reiterated wanting the match tonight, just as the show went off the air. Now, of course that didn't actually happen. Um, I like the angle. Obviously he felt like it was a bait and switch. Uh, what Fuck did- him. What is it? Has he ever produced television? I, I mean, just the way I don't remember that by the way, until you, until you laid it out to me, right. that's good TV. That is good TV. If anything's going to make you want to tune in to see what's going on next, that little scene that you just described would be a perfect way to do it. So fuck Dave Meltzer. One of the things that made air too is Vader screaming at Bachwinkle, I'm tired of your shit. And it made TV. And when he goes to repeat it, you move the mic away like, oh God, not again. Uh, but I mean, they're into it, which is good stuff. Uh, live TV. I love live TV. Absolutely. Um, Meltzer reports in the July 10th observer that over the weekend, Vader was once again, referred to as big van Vader. And it appears since he's leaving UWFI and Japan for new Japan, maybe that opens up the opportunity for him to no longer be referred to as super Vader over there. And he can just be regular old big van Vader, uh, which I think everybody uh, remembers him as at least from a WCW standpoint, let's get to bash at the beach, 1995. This was outdoors on the actual beach, Huntington beach, California. And Vader comes to the ring wearing the headdress and he hadn't worn it in years, but he's wearing it again here because he's no longer with the UWFI and new Japan has said, okay, you've got our blessing. Hogan keeps the world title in a cage match here with big van Vader. They go 13 minutes and 13 seconds two and a half stars. And this is a match where Vader would seriously hurt his shoulder. When he comes off the top rope and he lands on it, when were you made aware of the injury? Because this is certainly going to be something we're going to be talking about a lot. Yeah. Right after the match is when it became obvious. Um, probably 20 minutes later, 25 minutes later, very soon. What did you think of, uh, their match on the beach? Obviously it's a different look for you guys to do, uh, you know, a, a real show on the beach and Hogan is the cash cow. What'd you think? I liked it, you know, and again, I, you know, I, I don't look at matches sometimes the way, you know, Dave Meltzer would, or, or even, a, you know, an average wrestling fan would, you know, I, I looked, I, I look at it from a, a little bit of a macro perspective in terms of how does it affect future business? And I think we achieved a lot there from a wrestling you know, perspective. I think Hogan and Vader delivered, you know, a cage match in that particular situation. I thought was a decent, you know, there was, there was at least a justifiable reason to have a cage match. Um, there was a lot of things I liked about it. I think having the, the event outdoors on a beach in Southern California 
added to the theme in the branding of Bash at the Beach as opposed to having Bash at the Beach in fucking Biloxi um, or worse yet, <laughs> somewhere where there's no beach involved. Um, so there was a lot of things I liked about it. One of the things that uh, always stuck out to me about this show is Sullivan and Zodiac do a run-in, but they're chased off by Dennis Rodman. One of the first times we see Rodman here with Hogan years before the NWO, or at least a year. And then after the show goes off the air, or so we think uh, we're off the air, Flair comes out and starts yelling at Vader for losing. And then Vader gets mad. Arn Anderson comes in. Eventually, um, they scurry away from Vader. And it looks like Vader is now a babyface, or so we would think, because it certainly sets up a handicap match where Vader is going to take on Arn Anderson and Ric Flair at Clash of the Champions 31 in Daytona Beach, Florida. As you may imagine, Vader beats them both in a handicap match. Eight minutes and five seconds. Um, Vader finally uh, gets the win here. I think a lot of people expected this to just be an even bigger squash than it was. W- did Ric Flair win a fucking match on TV in 1995? It seems really, really hard to point to wins right now. Yeah, probably not. Two and a half stars. The match gets a, a five rating and it does set up the Flair Anderson feud, which I think a lot of people uh, still talk about to this day because it was so rare and it never really happened. So even though it was a, a squash and a handicap match, it did set up something people are still talking about. It's been mentioned that, um, the original plan was to be Vader Hogan at the very first nitro. And that to me makes a lot of sense because he had been, you know, the, the biggest heel and the most, uh, over monster that WCW had, he's coming fresh off of a cage match pay-per-view was that match discussed. We know it's not going to happen, but was it ever kicked around? No, it just wasn't, you know, and I, I I don't know who reported it or how that got around, but, um, I'll go back to it. Let me, let me clarify that. Let me retract that. It may have been discussed, but not seriously. Vader. I'm trying to remember when we cut Vader, you know, the incident with Paul, we're almost there. Oh, Paul Orndorff and Vader happened. You know, I don't remember how soon before nitro, but it may have been discussed, but not seriously. To me, it would have been a better match to sell nitro than Hogan versus big Bubba Rogers. Um, it depends how you look at it. I mean, yes, it would have been, you know, hypothetically, even, you know, realistically would a Vader Hogan match be a bigger marquee match than Hogan and Bubba Rogers. Yes. That wouldn't necessarily mean I do it on the first episode of Nitro. We had a lot of great matches on Nitro, but there was no real stellar ones. We weren't trying to deliver a pay-per-view on Nitro. We were trying to deliver a different look. We were trying to deliver a live TV format. We were trying to deliver a surprise. We were trying to deliver a diversity in, in, the, in, in the sense of having you know a lot of New Japan uh, action on the show. Um, we weren't trying to deliver a pay-per-view and that's why I said it may have been discussed, but not seriously. And just look at the rest of the format on, on that show. There was nothing there, um, that would suggest we were trying to create a pay-per-view that, that wasn't the goal. 
Well, and it is sort of interesting because there's Saturday night tapings on August 21st, which are going to air on September 2nd. And it feels like Vader is positioning himself to be in the war games match, but on Hogan's team after sting and Savage beat Regal and Eaton, they do a post-match interview and Sullivan comes out and tells them they can't trust Vader, which brings Vader out and Sullivan backs away laughing as if he's planted a seed of distrust. And we see giant standing in the background and Meltzer even writes in the observer that it's probably going to be Vader versus being in a strap match at Halloween havoc, but then plans change in the September 11th edition of the observer. We first hear about the backstage brawl between Leon white and Paul Orndorff. Uh, and apparently that brawl, according to the observer led to renewed negotiations that resulted in Lex Luger being signed and showing up as the big surprise on Monday nitro. I know you're going to say that's not why that happened. That is, that, that is, that is right there. That is a fucking branding statement at the, uh, uh, that typifies the fraud that is Dave Meltzer. Where in the fuck does he, he must smoke a ton of weed to come up with this kind of bullshit. He wrote that. The- so that is so far from the truth. There's not even a way you could use your imagination and try to connect the dots to make any sense out of what he wrote. Let's talk about the fight. Um, <laughs> we don't want to talk about Dave anymore. Well, no. In fact, I mean, God almighty, I had this crystal ball in my hand and I, I've been negotiating with Lex Luger and Sting secretly for months, weeks at least, probably several weeks, four or five at the least. And I did that because I knew that I was going to need him because I was going to fire Vader because he got in a fight with Paul Orndorff. One had nothing to do with the other. Talk about creating. I mean, just God dang. That's some fucking hocus pocus going on there. That's ridiculous. Just to be clear, the Vader Orndorff fight had absolutely nothing to do with Lex Luger appearing on the first Nitro. Zero, zero. Had the, had the Vader fight not happened, what would Vader have done on the first nitro? I don't know. I have no idea. Let's tell the story of the fight. But I I do know, I do know one thing. Luger would have still showed up. Right. That had nothing to do, nothing to do with Vader. Now I'm sure what happened here. I shouldn't say I'm sure I would guess what happened here is people know that Vader is, is a, a big money player. And people know that Luger in theory is probably based on what's happened prior to this, a big money player. So if negotiations had fallen apart for Luger before now, if Vader's out in theory, this frees up cash to bring him in. But I know that's not the case. And maybe we're just jumping to conclusions in the observer. Let's talk about no, what- you're, you're, it's fantasy booking, right? It, it's, it's fantasy backstage booking. It's fantasy management is what that is. That's Dave Meltzer pretending in his own fucked up mind that he's, if he was running a wrestling company, perhaps this was the logic behind it. Nothing, not even close. Mabel was the third man. Davey boy Smith was going to be the fourth guy in the NWO. And oh yeah, the only reason we brought Lex Luger in is because I fired Vader. There's your top three, you know, Dave Meltzer hits. Vader said that you called him at 8 a.m. at the Marriott where he was staying and you told him that he had promised to do a photo shoot for weeks 
And if he didn't do it on that day, you were going to fire him. And Vader said the photo shoot lasted for four hours. And he said that, uh, he asked you to call over and tell someone he was going to be late, but he said that you didn't do that. And then Vader said he arrived at the building that night for the show. And he sat down and Paul came in and said, you're fucking late. Why are you late? And he tried according to Vader to politely explain to Paul that he was doing that photo shoot and asked him if anyone told him, Paul said, no one told him a fucking thing. And Vader said, that doesn't give you a reason to mistreat me. And I'm sure that's not the exact phrase he used. And then he said to Paul, if that's not good enough for you, then you can go fuck yourself. And he told Paul, he's not going to get cussed out by him because he's not the boss. And Vader said that Paul then left. And then Terry Taylor came in and told him they had to go do some interviews. Vader got his mask and his rubber hose so he could pump up. And he started going to do the interviews. And then Vader said, Paul got in front of him, stopped him from going and called him everything in the book and threatened him to his face. And then Vader slapped him. He says, Paul's feet came off the ground and his back hit the cement floor and his head just missed a steel toolbox that was sitting there. And Vader said he thought to himself, had he hit the toolbox, he would be done. And then he goes over to ask Paul if he's okay. And Paul starts to come too. And then Vader said he hit the ground hard because he slapped the shit out of him. Now Vader said Paul's right arm was as skinny as Vader's wrist. And he also says that Paul's probably only 200 pounds at the time and in bad shape physically. And he thought to himself that he had to defend himself and fight back, but he doesn't want to get fired and hurt him. So Vader said, because he slapped him, he felt he should get it back. So he says he fed Paul his face and let him hit him back. And Vader said it was nothing. It was a weak right hand. And then Paul hit him two more times and Vader drug him down with him. He says the wrestlers then helped pull Paul up. And then Paul then kicked Vader before he was able to get up. And, uh, Paul's wearing flip-flops. Vader's got his boots on. <sighs> Allegedly, when they fight into the coach's room, Ming comes in behind him and grabs him and says, Leon, that's enough. You're going to hurt him. And Vader said at that point, he wasn't going to mess with Ming because that would have been a mistake. Now that's Vader's version. Almost everyone else tells a different version. What version did you hear, Eric? <sighs> Okay. Number one. And everybody that listens to the show knows I I don't I don't talk about people that aren't here to defend themselves. I'm just not gonna do that. And I'm not gonna start now. I am gonna point out one kind of important fact that that, that started the story out. Number one, my role in the company was never in the history of my relationship with WCW, I never called and organized photo shoots for anybody. So the very beginning of that story, I will say somebody made up is for the reason as to why he was late and, and how that may have had something to do with me. That's not true. There's, there's no one you can find to do an interview with or have a beer with that will ever tell you honestly that I had ever had anything to do with what would have been in that case PR, which is what a photo shoot would have had to do with never. It just didn't happen. So my role in that story, I can tell you is a hundred percent fiction. I wasn't at the building when it all went down. I didn't see it. 
I was actually on my way to the building, which is the center stage. I was in my car. I got a phone call from Janie, who had a relationship with Paul. And they were very good friends. Let's put it that way. And she was very concerned because she was afraid when I found out what, what happened that I was going to fire Paul. And she was upset. And I said, Janie, tell me what happened. Tell me exactly what happened. Tell me the truth. And I, Janie would never lie. She would never, ever, ever lie under any circumstances. And she told me the truth. And she was upset. She said, Paul and Vader got in a fight. Got into a verbal confrontation, got loud, got aggressive. And I remember, I'm paraphrasing now, Paul smacked him. They went down and then it got broke up. I said, well, tell me how the fight started. She told me how it started. And it was Vader being Vader. And I'd seen it. I saw how Vader, going back to the beginning of this podcast, I saw how Vader treated, never announcers really, but production people. Vader could be difficult to work with. And I understood it. You know, center stage was a small, tiny, little stinky building with no air conditioning. There wasn't enough room for everybody. Vader was a big guy. Traveling was a pain in the ass for a guy as big as Vader. Just the, the grind. I, I get it. I get a guy losing his temper. I, and I didn't hold that against him. But I also could see, I had seen Vader bully people when he was in a bad mood. So the whole Fuck you, I'm not in the mood to do what I what you're asking me to do right now and saying that to Paul Orndorff, who I also knew and, and trusted. Um, I could see how that went bad. Um, I, I wasn't there, so I can't, you know, validate or or discredit the blow by blow, blow by blow that, that Vader gave. I'll just let it sit where it sits and let people who were there describe it. But I made the decision that I made because – I believe Janie, and she was there. Um, she did see it, and I knew Paul, and I knew Vader. I knew it. I I could see how it went down. So, there you go. Why did you decide to let him go? For the exact same reasons I just described. I there was a pattern with with Vader. I'd seen it too often. Um, he could be the, the, the he could be the, a big teddy bear. He could be the kindest, sweetest, most gentle guy you ever met, and he could be a bully. I just I had to make a decision. It, it came down to who do I believe, and I talked to enough people who were there that saw it that basically said the same thing, and I made the decision I made. Vader said of the release that you sent him home, and during that time he had heard that he was going to go over Hogan on the first Nitro. And Vader said much to his surprise, he heard you were in his corner during this entire time. And even though he didn't wrestle on the first nitro, he was on the opening for it. And he said, you told him you wanted him to take a six month suspension and a pay cut, roughly half of what he was making for the incident. And Vader said for him, he looked at that as a nearly $400,000 fine. And Vader said, when you wouldn't come off that number and he said he told you that if that was your decision, he was going to go elsewhere. He asked you if he came back after the suspension, if he could get his full contract and you said he would. And he thought that was very fair of you. And ultimately you reached a settlement where there was a ton of time left on it, but it's maybe time to leave. Talk to me about, because this is a little confusing even to follow 
was there a suspension and you wanted him to stick around for half the money and you did that because you thought he would just wind up quitting anyway and that's what happened no 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 there was no negotiation there was no discussion of a suspension i fired him And and i remember right where i did it i was in the hallway of the marriott hotel in minneapolis next to the next to the venue there was not a negotiation. There was not a discussion. Nobody talked about a suspension. There was no, you know, cut your pay in half as a fine. None of that happened. So when you're saying in Minneapolis, you're saying the night of the first nitro. That was the first time I saw him. So he since sh- the incident. So he shows up to the show, to Nitro, and you do you organize a meeting or you're just passing him in the hallway and see him? And I saw it? him. I, no, I saw him. I saw him in the lobby of the hotel and pulled him aside and told him he was fired. How does he react? Shocked. Um, I'm not proud of this, by the way, you know, I've never, I haven't fired that many people. You know, there was, there was a period of time when I got, uh, the reputation of, you know, just firing people right and left. The, the number of people I've fired in my career, um, you could probably count them on one hand. Uh, so firing something is not firing people is something, not something that I was ever proud of or bragged about. Um, it hit Leon pretty hard. He, he, he wasn't expecting it. He didn't get defensive. He didn't get, he didn't try to bully me. It was none of that. It was, I think the reality of the situ- situation set in, and I think he was surprised. Well, I know he was. I don't think he was. I know he was. Do you thank him for his contribution, shake his hand, and everybody goes their separate way, or how does the meeting end? Uh, I didn't shake his hand. I, I mean, it wasn't like we are going to hug each other. I think in his mind he was hoping that there might be a follow-up conversation and I might change my mind. That was my impression. And again, I remember it pretty vividly because I, I remember, you know, where we were standing in the hotel. That was, like I said, I didn't fire that many people. So I do remember, you know, when I do. Um, and I, I think he was, he was shocked. I think he was hoping to leave it on as positive a note as he could. And in my mind, when I walked away, I thought he's, he's probably thinking I'm going to change my mind. You're in the middle of a, um, I mean, I guess we'll call it a feud. The Monday night war is not officially really started, but you're certainly going head to head with Vince McMahon and you're, you're taking some of his older stars and making them your primetime stars, the macho man's the Hulk Hogan's you got to assume he's going to go work for the competition. You were comfortable with that. Yep. Vader was a three-time WCW world champion, a one-time United States champion, Unfortunately, we lost him on June 18th of last year or earlier this year, rather. Um, it's a shame he wasn't inducted into the WWE hall of fame. He certainly deserves the opportunity to be there. Wouldn't you agree, Eric? I absolutely do. And it's a, it's a shame that, you know, we have to end a podcast like this because we're following the timeline and the timeline was what the timeline was. And certainly his relationship with WCW and me ended the way it did. And I'm not happy about that. You know, I'm not proud of it. I wish it would have ended up differently. But it didn't, and it doesn't change the fact, however, that, as you said, I think he should be in the, the WWE Hall of Fame. I don't think there's anybody his size that made as big of an impact um, on the sport as he did during his time, especially you know in, in the 90s. Um, so for that alone, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Add to that the just huge impact that he had in Japan. And... You know, the one thing I guess I would like to say on a personal note, if, if any of his friends or family hear about this or read excerpts from it, because as we t- discussed, 
they can be somewhat misleading in, in, unless you hear the whole episode. I had a lot of respect for Leon. I wasn't excited to let Leon go. There was a lot of things I loved about Leon in terms of working with him. He could be one of the sweetest, nicest, most gentle guys that you've ever worked with. He had shortcomings like we all do. And he was a talent, which means he had a, a lot of pride and he had an ego, which all talent have. It's not a bad thing to have an ego. It's what gets you to the dance in many respects. But it's something that sometimes can get in the way. Um, I, I wished, you know, my relationship with, with Vader would have ended in a, in a much different note. But I am proud to have had the opportunity to work with him and am proud of the impact that he had on WCW. And if you want to see that impact, go watch Super Brawl, his strap match against Sting, Halloween Havoc against Cactus Jack, and don't forget Starcade against Ric Flair. Rest in peace to one of the greatest big men of all time, and rest in peace to this episode. We hope you enjoyed our look back at Vader and WCW. Uh, he is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week for Halloween Havoc 1995. Don't want to miss Ooh. this one. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.